It's 8 p.m. Boulevard Watch Time. On Christmas, say Merry Christmas. On New Year, say Happy New Year. Hi, this is Sean, I guess. <laughs> and once again, this is the Atari 7800 Homebrew Podcast, episode number 26. We will be discussing we. Actually, I'm the only one here. Anyway, I <laughs> will be discussing Santa Simon eventually. But of course, the way, you know, the way podcasts are, got to kind of uh, settle in a bit before you get into the uh, main focus. It's kind of like what George Carlin once said about uh, going to work, how, you know, the first 20 minutes, you're, you're just kind of settling in. You know, it's like, forget the company. This is my time. I guess it's kind of like how podcasts work, right? But, um, First of all, I apologize for uh, the Astro Blaster episode being a little bit late. I like to get these episodes out first thing Saturday morning. Um, I'm going to confess, uh, one of the reasons I was delayed, and I feel embarrassed for this, is that um, when I was recording the main parts of the episode, I hadn't yet really played a lot of Astro Blaster, so I didn't know what the heck I was talking about. So I decided before I go any further and do a heck of a lot of recording, I'd better spend some time with Astro Blaster and play it. I have the cartridge. I played the cartridge a few times and uh, I played the arcade ROM like I was talking about. Oh, and I finally played the actual arcade game the day after the episode was released. But um, my friend uh, Jim and I, my co-host from Pie Factory Podcasts, we went to Galloping Ghost Arcade because he really wanted to play a bunch of uh, two-player simultaneous games. So I joined him for that. Oh, and while we were at it, before we actually went to Galloping Ghost, we recorded a bonus episode of Pie Factory Podcast. Now, those of you who don't listen to Pie Factory Podcast, the episode we recorded might actually be interesting for you. Um, it was a special episode that we recorded, actually at the request of Phil the No Swear Gamer, he heard us mention that we both, that Jim and I both had experience in radio broadcasting. Uh, I was on the air. Jim was kind of behind the scenes. And <laughs> long story short, we both worked at the same station in diff at different times, about 10 years apart. And Phil said, why not do an episode where all you do is just talk about your experiences in radio? He said, I'll bet a lot of people would love to hear that. So that's exactly what we did. So we sat uh, at Tony's restaurant in Brookfield across the street from uh, Galloping Ghost. And we spent almost three hours with microphones on the table just talking about our experiences. So we were both really excited to do that one, too. We were thrilled with uh, we, we were just really having a great time with it. So uh, you might want to check it out, even if you don't like arcade games, because we don't actually talk about video games at all in that episode. <laughs> But uh, we do talk about video games in this podcast. There I go with we again. Huh. Is there another person in here that I'm not seeing? Huh. Well, the dog's not here. She's uh, in the next room. Oh, I do have a Sick Pickles update for those of you who don't follow Atari Age. On December 2nd, Breck Brixius posted a ROM, a playable ROM, of his latest version of Sick Pickles. I haven't had a chance to play it yet, but it looks like the ROM now has instructions. You pull down on the joystick to get the instructions, and you push up on the joystick to configure the game. And it looks like some of the configuration options are the color of the mouth, the speed of the chewing, and how many frames or cells the mouth animation takes. And on top of all that, the game now supports high score saving via the Atari Vox or the save key, 
So that's uh, that's pretty cool. I I'm gonna have to try this out. I can't wait to try it. But um, anyway, this is gonna be obviously the last episode of this podcast before Christmas, which is why I chose Santa Simon for this episode. And I'll talk a little bit more about other Atari seventy eight hundred related Christmas thing or things or something. And uh, I mentioned before that something I really like is how every Christmas Ferg has an episode of the Atari 2600 Game by Game podcast when he uh, talks about various Christmas memories. And I'd like to do that on this podcast as well. And I know that uh, there are people in the world who don't like Christmas or they hate Christmas, you know, for various reasons. Like I know of a couple of people who lost a loved one on Christmas in fact, I know my wife was talking about how a friend of hers, every Christmas for several years, something bad happened, like somebody died, or, or there was a really nasty car accident on the way home, or literally a house fire happened, or something like that. I am not that way at all. I mean, I've I've always had a nice Christmas, thankfully, and uh, my wife and I always do nice things for Christmas, and uh, so I'd just like to share some Christmas memories in this episode. Um, and I, gu- I guess one reason there are some people who don't like Christmas is because they find it to be kind of a hassle, rushing around, getting stuff clean, getting presents, preparing for guests, and all that. And, you know, I mean, yeah, that is kind of a, it can be a hassle, it can be kind of busy, but uh my wife and I, every year, we keep thinking of new ways to just kind of alleviate that, just trying to eliminate the hassle. Like one thing that we're doing this year, just to cut down on all the shopping we have to do is we're kind of, uh, we're not getting each other Christmas presents, or at least not to the degree that we used to, like maybe just one or two small things and then just be done with it. And we did get ourselves one big, I guess, Christmas present. I mentioned that uh, actually last episode that we got a brand new turntable. And I had some adventures with that. I think I mentioned how we tested it out at home and I didn't really like the sound coming out of it. It just wasn't very dynamic, not a lot of EQ happening. And I figured that maybe it was the setup. And sure enough, yeah, it just wasn't set up properly. It turns out, I think what they did at the store was just basically put everything together really quickly for demonstration. And then whoever wanted to buy it, bought it. So I set it up. I followed uh, some YouTube instructions. The, the turntable is an Audio-Technica LP120. We, we were just floored by the features of that thing. Because first of all, we wanted a turntable that could play 78 RPM. We do actually have a 78 in our collection, but uh, my old Technics turntable can only do 33 and 45. And my wife doesn't like my old Technics turntable. <laughs> uh, it is old, and sometimes when you're playing a 33 and a third RPM, it slips into 45. But that's really the only problem I had with it. Uh, it was pretty decent. And I got it for free, too, so... <laughs> Uh, that's that's always a good thing, but uh, with the uh, Audio Technica we got, it has those three speeds. Ever notice they don't really have 16 RPM anymore? I've never seen a 16 RPM record in my life. I know there were spoken word albums at that uh, speed, but I never found one. But yeah, it had those three speeds. It had some nerdy stuff that really impressed me, like it has, strobo- it has a stroboscopic light. And what the purpose of a stroboscopic light is, um, it's basically to make sure that the turntable is at a steady speed and at the speed that it should be. Like on the uh, outer edge of the platter, there's a pattern of dots. And if it's playing at the correct speed, you should see the stroboscopic light will make it look like there's just one dot and it's just staying in place. And I thought that was really cool. Um, It actually allows you to play records backwards, too. I thought that was awesome. It's got all kinds of great features. Um, I think Ferg was talking about, I think Ferg has one too, but uh, 
second time I had to talk about Ferg in this podcast. Isn't that great? But uh, so I got it set up and sure enough, it sounded a lot better. But then I started noticing, I was like, wait a minute, something doesn't sound right. Like I thought I heard like music slowing down, like, like kind of almost like the record was warped or something. Like I was listening to a Beatles album and I, I was like, wait a minute, did I hear, did I hear something slow down? And then I listened to a couple of 45s and the problem was much more noticeable. And I looked at the turntable and I noticed it was kind of going back and forth, a little bit of wobble. And this, the dot that should have been steady was actually kind of moving in a little bit of a circle. So I took the turntable back to the store where we got it. And the guy who sold it to me kind of looked at it and we put it side by side against another of the, the exact same model. And I checked out the other turntable and the stroboscope light, for example, the, the dot, it wasn't moving in a circle. It was pretty solid. And we listened to both turntables to uh, compare. And the guy was actually pointing out the exact same places where I was hearing the slowdown. So he's like, yeah, you're right. <laughs> My wife was beside herself when I pointed that out because she's like, I can't hear that. She, she was thinking that I was just being a little too fussy because my ears are extremely sensitive and they'll pick up things like that. Like, here's how sensitive my ears are. Like, if I'm used to hearing a song in a certain key, if I hear somebody sing it or perform it in a different key, I can almost not recognize it at all. So <laughs> that's, that's how fussy my ears are. But it's not just my ears. Apparently, like you can ruin a record if the uh, turntable has too much wobble in it like that. Basically, the rule is if you can tell by listening that the turntable is not steady, then it's going to cause problems. So, yeah, I got the new turntable, brought it home, hooked it up, set it up properly. And there was a box of records that I had that I totally forgot that we had about uh, when my wife and I first got together. For, uh, my first birthday after that, my parents were out somewhere and they saw like a, a, a small box of singles for dirt cheap. And uh, they thought there'd be a few songs in there that I'd like. They weren't sure about the rest. They're like, you know what? Let's just get this for Sean. He can sort out what he wants. He can sell off what he doesn't want. You know. And I forgot we had that. And the first thing I did, I grabbed a copy of deep purple by April temple, April. Is it Nino temple and April Stevens or Nino Stevens and April temple. Anyway, I didn't know we had that and I never would own that if it were my choice. Like I would never actively buy it, but it was, it's an original pressing on Atco records been played a lot. I put it on the turntable and it was absolutely perfect. It was nice and steady. The EQ was nice and bright. So I was so absolutely giddy. Then my wife was like, oh my God, you got it working? Great, great, great. And so she started putting different records on. And the same records that I was hearing the slowdown on before she was listening, she's like, okay, yeah, I definitely hear a difference now. Yeah, you you were absolutely right. So I, I was just thrilled. And then we went to a record store not far from where we live and uh, got a, a new vinyl copy of the uh, soundtrack from a Charlie Brown Christmas on green vinyl, uh, which is, uh, um, I'm a slut for colored vinyl. <laughs> so I had to get that. And of course we're both, my wife and I both love a Charlie Brown Christmas and the music from it very much. So she had no argument with me. She's like, yeah, we probably should get that. So, so that that's been, uh, that's been my past couple of weeks, I guess. And, um, yeah. So, um, anyway, like I was saying, I'd like to talk ab about some Christmas memories and other things Christmas. So, you know what? I think I'll just start in with that. Um, specifically, I'd like to talk about how Chicago does Christmas. I mentioned before I, I live in Chicago. I've lived here since 2006. I grew up in the area and then I moved to New Jersey when I was like 23 years old. 
and I lived there for eight years and I came back to the city of Chicago and I've always wanted to live here as long as I've, I can remember and um, got that wish in 2006 and I've absolutely loved living here. And first of all, I just want to get this off my chest. Uh, the stuff you hear about Chirac and the murder rates and everything, let's just say a lot of media like the ratings, so they're going to exaggerate things. I think there was a recent survey of like the big murder cities in the United States. Chicago isn't even in the top 30, but seriously, Chicago is a great place. I've lived here, again, 11 years. I love where I live. I've never once felt in any kind of real danger, but uh, seriously, one thing I love about this city is that Chicago really knows how to do Christmas. Uh, if you ever fly into Chicago for around Christmas time, like say Thanksgiving or at both the international airports, Midway and O'Hare, they are all decked out. They have really nice Christmas lighting on the outside. They have decorations on the inside. It looks really, really cool. I took a few pictures of uh, Midway when we landed uh, Thanksgiving weekend when we flew back home from uh, visiting my mother-in-law in New Jersey. I'll have to post those. Those look really cool. And uh, the Chicago Transit Authority, CTA, the people who are in... I'm not talking about the name of the band Chicago when their first album came out. I'm talking about the actual transit company in the town. Uh, it's the public transit that we use in this town. Uh, they have train lines, which basically the equivalent of the New York City subway system. In fact, we have a couple of subways here and, of course, a series of buses and something that they do every year. I don't know when they started doing this, but uh, a couple of employees got the idea to deck out a train for Christmas, just completely like decorate up for Christmas. They use wrapping paper as wallpaper, uh, red and green lights inside the trains, and uh, the destination signs on the train, I think, instead of saying, like, Howard or 95th or whatever, they say Santa Express. And there's actually a train car that has Santa Claus on it. And at every stop, he'll get off the train and uh, talk to kids and things. And it's really, really cool. And they pipe in uh, Christmas music into the... Uh, into the train cars and it, it's just really really cool uh what's really cool is uh, I, I usually take the red line if i'm taking a cta home and uh, the red line is the major like north south cta train line it goes from roseland on the south side all the way up to howard street which is the northern border of chicago it borders chicago and evanston and um what's really cool is uh there are some years when the holiday train is scheduled when I would be getting off work, so I will time myself to get on that thing. The only problem is on the weekends, it's a real pain to get on because everybody's off and everybody wants to take their little kids on the holiday train. A lot of people actually travel to the very first station and crowd the train. So sometimes there are people who can't even get on and enjoy it, but uh, that it's a really awesome thing. They recently started doing a holiday bus too, where they do the same, in fact, my wife and I took a holiday bus once, and in the back of it, they had a fireplace in Santa Claus by the fireplace. And uh, it was just so cool how they do that. And apparently, it is employees who decided to do it on their own time, so it's not even costing the Chicago Transit Authority any money. It's really, really awesome. And something else they, they used to do, I don't know if they still do it. I haven't, I've looked for it in the past couple of years and haven't seen it, but in the Red Line stations downtown, uh, downtown, the red line is subway. Uh, where I live, it's elevated. It's about 20 feet above the ground. But uh, downtown, it's underground subway. And um, the red line entrance is downtown. They used to put uh, 
some Christmas decorations above the uh, the entrances, and that included like large toy trains, and it looked really awesome. I'll have to see if I have pictures of that. I can post those as well. Even something as basic as the Chicago Transit Authority, they know how to do Christmas really well. Uh, Michigan Avenue, which is um, it's kind of like the main shopping district, uh, North Michigan Avenue. In fact, I work on North Michigan Avenue every year, like up and down Michigan Avenue for a good half a mile, I would say at least half a mile. They have white lights on all the trees, and usually I think the weekend before Thanksgiving, they have a big lighting festival where suddenly they all come alive and it's like, whoa, look at that. And uh, that's really cool. And speaking of lights, uh, Lincoln Park Zoo in Chicago, it's a free zoo. I think the park district runs it. I'm not 100% sure, but uh, it's a really cool place if you like zoos. We have two major zoos in the Chicago area. There's Lincoln Park Zoo in Chicago, and there's Brookfield Zoo in Brookfield, uh, not far from Galloping Ghost Arcade. And some years ago, the company I was working for, they took us on a company outing to uh, Brookfield Zoo, and huge difference. Brookfield Zoo, it's all spread out. So, like, you can see, say, a polar bear, and then walk and 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 walk, and then there's the next exhibit. It'll be penguins or something. What I love about Lincoln Park Zoo is it's not like that. You can see maybe uh, the gorilla exhibit, and then you turn around. Oh, there are the penguins right there. You, know, you don't have to walk forever to get to the next to the next thing you want to look at. But uh, what Lincoln Park Zoo does every year is a little thing called zoo lights, which is pretty much what it says. Uh, for zoo lights, what they do is they have all the trees... Uh, decorated with uh, with different colored lights. You can actually see it from Lakeshore Drive, and it looks amazing. And they have uh, special things going on inside once you get there. Like, they'll have uh, ice carvers in there. Uh, you can get hot chocolate, and uh, they, they do, like, various little Christmas things there. And it's really, really cool, and, of course, it's free. People complain about the cost of living in Chicago. <laughs> Number one, it's not really that bad. Number two, this is free. You can do this stuff for free. I mean, the... What's better than free? And other things that, that they do in Chicago, uh, in what used to be Marshall Fields, it's now a Macy's. Uh, there's a restaurant up at the top of it called the Walnut Room. And it's basically a remnant of old department stores because old massive department stores, they used to have restaurants. So that way you spend a lot of time shopping and to relax, you can go up to the restaurant and um, have a meal. It's that, that was pretty typical back way back in the heyday of department stores. I and probably most of you listening are too young to remember this, but uh, we're, we're talking like throwing back to the days when you would have people in the department store who would say, yes, you know what I mean? Those kind of people. <laughs> and um, so they still have that at what used to be the Marshall Fields. They still have that restaurant there. One of the special features of the Walnut Room is they have like women dressed as fairies kind of going around to various tables and saying, hey, does anybody like want to make a wish? And they do a little thing with a magic wand and say, hey, then your wish has been granted and all this stuff. It's kind of corny, but hey, people like it. And uh, every year at Christmas time, they have a giant Christmas tree. And it's kind of a tradition to go to the Walnut Room for lunch around Christmas time. I did that for the first time, actually, last year. My wife and her mother and I went and uh, it was... It's actually pretty decent food, and uh, it's some really nice uh, chocolate cream pie. It was pretty good. That's a, a neat little tradition they have there. I'm glad that when Macy's took over, at least they kept the walnut room intact. Uh, there was talk about uh, 
shutting it down, but I think uh, there was a huge uprising, even huger than when Macy's converted Marshall Fields into another Macy's. So they, they're leaving that intact, thank God. But just about anywhere in the city, you're going to see things all decked out. Uh, at Wrigley Field, they usually have Christmas trees by the entrance. And you know what? Now, Wrigley Field, they have been massively renovating that place. Uh, if you've ever been to Bush Stadium in St. Louis, that I got to say, that's a really nice venue they have. It is so, so nice. They have uh, areas where you can sit down and actually watch a game on TV. Well, Wrigley Field has that now, so I wonder how they're going to do that. I haven't been by uh, Wrigley Field in a while, so I'm not sure how, they, uh, how they're how they going to do Christmas this year. But they usually do something. They usually have a couple of trees outside and garland and wreaths, and it looks really cool. Uh, the Art Institute downtown on Michigan Avenue, the place where Ferris Bueller went uh, to look at all those paintings. Uh, they have uh, stone lions in the entrance, and they always put wreaths around their necks. In fact, I think they make a ceremony out of that. Uh, they make a big deal about the day when they're putting the wreaths on the lions. There's also a festival that happens in town called... Oh yeah, this is what they're doing at Wrigley Field. They're having what's called a Chris Kindle Market, which uh, if you don't know what that is, it's basically kind of a... Uh, I, I don't know quite how to describe it, but they set up kind of a Christmas village, if you will, in the style of German Christmas festivals. You can get uh, uh, hot wine and things like you can do at uh, the German festivals, and they have... Uh, they're doing that at Wrigley Field now since they have a big plaza where they can do that. And they also do it downtown by the Daily Center, which is, uh, if you've ever seen the Blues Brothers, the Daily Center is right by the Cook County building, which is where Jake and Elwood had to go to pay the taxes on the orphanage. So it's right outside of there where they have the big Chris Kindle market. And I think they actually have vendors come in from Germany to sell their wares, like, uh, mostly candy and other food. Uh, there's some Christmas decorations that they sell. Uh, there's a handmade cuckoo clock vendor. And man, those things are expensive too. <laughs> They're so intricate though. It's, prob it's probably barely covers their costs. But uh, So that, that's always a, a, a nice little thing to, uh, to look at. And uh, not just businesses and things, but people in the neighborhoods, they also do a really nice job decorating their houses and everything with, uh, with lights. And that's one of the reasons why even in cold weather, I try to ride my bike as much as I can. I'll take my bike to work and back. And then, of course, it gets dark early now. Something that I just really noticed like last week when I was riding my bike home, how in the neighborhoods, people, there are so many nice looking houses with amazing Christmas lighting and things or holiday lighting, if you prefer. People here really know how to decorate their houses. Uh, we would probably do more for our apartment, but the only place we really could decorate the outside of our apartment is in the back. So unless people drive through the alley, they wouldn't really see, they wouldn't really get to appreciate what we would do. <laughs> so it's not really worth the time to do it where we live. But uh, and speaking of neighborhoods, I don't know if this is just my neighborhood or if uh, this goes throughout uh, other parts of the city. And this is something, my, again, my wife and I just absolutely love this. Every year around Hanukkah, there's a station wagon going around blasting some kind of music. I, I don't know if it's, there's a special Hanukkah. I'm not, I'm not Jewish, so I don't really know a lot about it. I don't know if it's like some kind of special Hanukkah music or something. And there's a giant menorah on the top of the station wagon with the appropriate number of candles lit for whatever day it is. And I, I just love seeing that. It's just so awesome having that go by. Something else I should mention. 
I might have mentioned before on a previous episode that uh, there's a place in Chicago that's probably my favorite place in the city. It's called the Old Town School of Folk Music. It's a nonprofit music school. And uh, my wife and I are there all the time. Well, we, we've been taking time off from taking classes there for the past couple of months. But uh, it's a great place. It's uh, relatively inexpensive tuition. It's like not even 200 bucks for a, to take a course there. And, of course, if you volunteer there, you can get a discount. Uh, if you build up enough volunteer hours, you can pay 20 bucks for an entire course, actually. But we take courses there all the time, and it's just a, a great vibe, what they have going on there. And uh, something they do every Christmas is what they call Songs of Good Cheer. And it's hosted by a couple of writers from the Chicago Tribune, and they're also musicians on the side. So they host this annual Songs of Good Cheer event, which, is, which happens at the Old Town School in their auditorium. And they play all kinds of Christmas music, especially things that uh, you don't really get to hear much, like uh, Christmas music from other countries and things like that. People go crazy for that event, but I'm going to be honest with you, I didn't like it. We, my wife and I went last year, and actually neither one of us really cared for it much. It, it's, it came to a point where it felt like I was sitting in music class and the teacher was making me sing along to whatever song we were going over. I was like, man, this is a drag. My wife looked at me. She said, you don't want to be here, do you? I said, no. She said, actually, neither do I. So at intermission, we got up, we left, and we went out to dinner. So. But I think we're the only two people in the entire city who don't go crazy for songs of good cheer. What we do go crazy for, there's a, a restaurant called the Weber Grill Restaurant. In fact, I have to mention my friend Jim again. He actually turned me on to that restaurant. He recommended it to me a long time ago. So my wife and I tried it out many years ago, like 1999, and we absolutely loved it. The thing about the Weber Grill Restaurant is basically everything on the menu is cooked on a Weber charcoal grill, and it's freaking amazing. Oh my God. Something that we started doing a couple of years ago, we're making it kind of an annual tradition now, is we're having Christmas Eve dinner there. And uh, they have just an amazing menu. They've got great steaks, great seafood, great salad, great everything. And uh, we're always looking forward to that. So I, I, I can't wait. It's usually jam-packed, too. It's like there's usually where there used to be an aisle you can walk down. Um, suddenly there are seats there. So we're doing that. And I think uh, I know I'm going all over the place. There's no real connection here. But uh, one more thing I have to mention about Chicago is there's a... The, the local station here, WGN, they, they actually have a super station called WGN America. They used to show some of the local stuff on WGN America, but they got rid of that, unfortunately. So if you don't live in Chicago and you're home, homesick for Chicago, they're like, well, tough. You're not going to see your local stuff anymore. But uh, what they do on the local channel here is every year, at least a couple of times, they run this TV special called Bozo, Gar, and Ray because WGN used to have the Bozo Show in Chicago, which everybody in Chicago watched. I mentioned before how I hate clowns, clowns are freaky, but Bozo, I would always, always watch, just like anybody else. Bozo, to me, never bothered me in the least. And uh, a little tiny bit of background on Bozo, just a very minor trivia bit. Krusty the Clown's voice, done by Dan Castellaneta, that was based on the voice of Bob Bell, who was the definitive bozo in Chicago's Bozo TV show. He retired in the early 80s, and then uh, some guy from Hollywood took over playing bozo who wasn't nearly as popular. 
But seriously, you just mentioned Bob Bell to someone who's, who grew up in Chicago, especially, say, from maybe the 60s and earlier. Just that name will probably bring a tear to the eye. The Bozo Gar and Ray special, they show uh, Christmas time every year, and they'll show bits and pieces from, uh, from the Bozo show over the years, going all the way back to the beginning of the Bozo show right up to the end. So you get to see the Bob Bell Bozo, you get to see the Joey Daria Bozo, and Gar, the Gar part of Bozo, Gar, and Ray was Garfield Goose. Garfield Goose was uh, a kid's show character. It was a puppet goose who would communicate simply by flapping his beak. Wouldn't talk or anything. He would communicate by flapping his beak. And the host of the show was a guy, Fraser Thomas, and he could understand everything Garfield was saying with his flapping beak. And Gar- he created Garfield Goose like back in the 50s, I think. And uh, Garfield Goose lasted well into the late 70s, I think, maybe even the early 80s. And uh, the premise of Garfield Goose was that this puppet goose thought he was king of the United States. So uh, basically the little plots would revolve around that. And there was another puppet, I think it was a squirrel or something, who communicated by mo- simply by moving his mouth. And Fraser Thomas was, would put his ear up to his mouth and basically repeat what he was saying. Oh, so you're, t- oh, so this is what you're saying. Huh? And Fraser Thomas would repeat what he was saying. So, And Ray of Bozo Gar and Ray was a guy named Ray Rayner who was also part of the Bozo show. He had his own show. I remember, I have vague memories of seeing Ray Rayner, but I also remember back in the late 70s when I would see the Ray Rayner show that it bored me. So I didn't really watch that much, but uh, I always watch Bozo Gar and Ray religiously at Christmas time. It, it's just so Chicago. It's just part of me, part of Chicago. It's something I have to do. Another thing that happens in the city of Chicago around Christmas time is there's always a theater in the city that presents It's a Wonderful Life as if it were a radio play. You actually go to the theater and you watch the characters in costume, but they're putting on a radio show instead of the actual play or movie, It's a Wonderful Life. It'd be as if you were watching an old-fashioned radio show in action. Like, you see the Foley artist add the sound effects and everything, and it's, uh, I've never actually done that, but I've seen little bits and pieces on it in the news, and it looks really cool how they do that. It's a different theater every year, seemingly. And when speaking of throwbacks to, say, the old radio days and everything, uh, you know how in A Christmas Story, when uh, the Parkers went to Higby's and the Santa Claus was up on the slide and everything, my mother said that when she was a kid, that was actually pretty accurate. She, she was born in 1943, so it probably would have been the late 40s, early 50s when she would see that. Uh, she said the Weebolts department store in Chicago used to do that big Santa on a slide thing. And uh, Weebolts, um, I don't think that was a thing outside of the Chicago area, but that was one of the major department stores. And it wasn't actually downtown. It was actually in one of the residential neighborhoods, probably not far from where my mother lived when she was a little kid growing up in Chicago. So yeah, that uh, in A Christmas Story, that was based on reality. So I don't even think Macy's in New York ever did that. But hey, Weebolts in Chicago did. And uh, it's just a little bit of what I had to mention about how Chicago does Christmas. And now that I've been rambling about all of that, I'm going to move on to what this podcast is all about. And that is Atari 7800 homebrews. So let's get into it, shall we? Now, I know I said this episode was going to be about Santa Simon, but there's another 7800 homebrew that is kind of seasonal, in fact, very seasonal, 
that I should talk about, and that's the Christmas 2012 demo done by GroovyB, who was also the programmer behind the homebrew of Worm, the topic of the next episode coming up. But the Christmas demo is, well, do you remember back in the late 80s, early 90s, mid 90s too, actually, there were what they called Euro demos, uh, I guess, some, and uh, sometimes called crack tros because uh, a lot of that kind of stuff is seen on uh, pirated software where it says cracked by uh, the Human League or whatever. But uh, I, I don't know if that's a real thing. I just kind of came up with it. Isn't that a band, actually? Now that I think of it? Anyway, but the whole purpose of that Euro demo, if I'm not mistaken, the whole purpose of those is simply to show off the graphics and sound capabilities of a computer in as little programming as possible. And uh, there's some pretty funky stuff you could see in those things. Uh, one thing I loved, it was kind of in the mid-90s, I think, when this started showing up in these demos, a little effect called Plasma. I saw those on a couple of PC demos, and I think you could get that to happen on Amiga as well, as long as you had an AGA Amiga. But uh, anyway, the Christmas demo is kind of in the same vein of those Euro demos, really. Let me describe it for you. It's an animation of Santa Claus flying to the left. Uh, he's actually kind of hovering in place while there's a scrolling play field, if you will. And the thing about this demo is it has, if I'm not mistaken, six-way parallax scrolling, which is really something. The music is simply a medley of a bunch of Christmas tunes. It starts off with Have Yourself a Merry Little Christmas. Um, if you know the history of that song, it's kind of sad, actually. Uh, it's from the movie Meet Me in St. Louis, and uh, the original lyrics were super depressing. And Judy Garland actually refused to sing that song until the lyrics were rewritten. And uh, it's because of that that we know the song as we know it now. Uh, let's see. After that, there's Frosty the Snowman, God Rest Ye Merry Gentlemen, Santa Claus is Coming to Town, then Jingle Bells, which, uh, fun fact for you, was actually written specifically for the fall. So it's actually more of a Thanksgiving song than a Christmas song. In fact, there's nothing in the song at all that talks about Christmas. But anyway, the last song is O Come All Ye Faithful. And then it just starts over from Have Yourself a Merry Little Christmas. But you see Santa kind of flying over a cityscape in a residential area. But you can kind of see skyscrapers in the background. It looks really, really cool. And uh, it's a very good animation. Uh, the thing about the sound, though, is it runs completely on pokey. So uh, the only possible ways you could really hear this, the music in this demo, is either through an emulator or through some kind of a, some kind of rewritable cartridge that has a pokey. Uh, I watched the demo on my Mateo's cart with a pokey on it, actually. And one of the characteristics of those Euro demos I was talking about is a lot of them have uh, greetings to a lot of people that were uh, participating in what they call uh, demo parties. And uh, I think I seem, I seem to remember there was a big one that was called The Scene. And uh, in so many ways, Christmas 2012 has throwbacks to those demos. The demo itself, it has several messages. It starts off by saying, Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year, Atari Age, from Groovy B. Nonner242 PG. And then it says, Season's greetings to Nonner242, Aspire 8, Pac-Man Red, SH3RG, and Mike. Uh, Miker, actually. M-I-K-E-R. And then there's a big, huge paragraph. Thanks for all your help creating XM game graphics and music. 
A big thanks to Kurt for having the XM Vision, and also to Albert for not banning the lot of us, too. A big ho-ho-ho to SH3RG, Nonner242, and in parentheses it says there's a pattern here, and Linkovich for Jaguar game graphics and sound engines, not forgetting the invaluable help of Drac is back, Hammer25, Jaybird3, Nonner242, Miker, Andy Moo, TMR, SH3RG, Cyrano J, OMF, Shamos, Sauron, Remo Williams, Linkovich, Gazdi, and Samwise for beta testing. All the best to the organizers of the homebrew events at the LAS. AC 2012, actually, it might have been something else. My autocorrect on my notes might have uh, changed that to something. Uh, Play Expo and EJAG Fest. They were an absolute blast. Greetings to Zero Square, Lucifer's Halo, TMR, Tez, Snicklin, NUI, is that Nui, 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 I don't know. Uh, Dr. Do, BMX, Thorsten. Um, this one's, I think Autocorrect got this one too, 108 stars. Matthias, uh, that might be Matthias Lutke, a.k.a. Schmutzpuppa, if I'm not mistaken. And everybody else that attended. Um, well, maybe not TMR's groupie, LOL. Best wishes to everybody over at Reboot, Format War, Atari Forum, Stardot, Jagware, NextGam, and Yaronet. I think that's uh, autocorrect as well. Happy Bacon Day! Exclamation point. To Revolutionica, Revolutionica, I don't know how that's pronounced, CMART604, Internet, and the rest of the Intellivision Forums guys and girls. Good luck to anybody working on new games and hardware projects. 2013 will be a good year for both the 7800 and the Jaguar. Roll on 2013. And uh, that's pretty much it. You, If you let the uh, the demo keep going, it just repeats the music and it repeats the text. And uh, that's all it is. But it is uh, pretty to look at. You can see it on YouTube. And if you want to try the demo yourself, I can put a link to that in the show notes. Uh, and, um, hey, you know what? Time to talk about Christmas one more time. And, um then we should probably start making moves toward Santa Simon. I probably mentioned before that video games are not really my primary interest. I love video games, don't get me me wrong. Uh, I will spend hours playing classic video games, but really my primary interest is actually music. I love music. It's it's just something that my mind just connects into so much. But uh, obviously with Christmas music is an important thing for me as well. Uh, What's really great is my wife and I both have the same kind of musical interests, like with holiday stuff. Well, with actually everything, really, come to think of it. Uh, So I just wanted to talk about some of the music that I like to listen to around the holiday times. Uh, Obviously, the soundtrack from A Charlie Brown Christmas that... I don't do Secret Santa stuff a lot. I, I just, because I'm, I'm, I'm a terrible gift giver. I don't really know what to get people. But there were a couple of times when I was kind of uh, almost involuntarily involved with Secret Santa stuff. And I found what makes a great gift is uh, if, if it's somebody you don't really know that much about, copy of a Charlie Brown Christmas soundtrack album is usually a good gift. It's got good music. It's great music. Vince Guaraldi Trio very pleasant piano jazz and it just works and and also because i'm such a big peanuts fan i have to have that it's just so so nice to listen to there's some stuff on it that's not even really seasonal you can listen to uh, any time of year like uh skating for elisa i think maybe half the album really is not really terribly seasonal linus and lucy of course 
You can listen to that anytime you want. Well, actually, you can listen to anything anytime you want, but you can listen to Linus and Lucy and it won't sound weird that you're doing it. It's like, wait a minute, this isn't Christmas. Well, yeah, it's not a Christmas tune. I gotta say, I am not a fan of Phil Spector. Uh, people go crazy for his productions, but I think they sound like garbage, quite frankly. The exception, though, his Christmas album. I love his Christmas album. Uh, God, it feels weird saying that I love the Christmas album of a guy who's currently in prison for second-degree murder. But uh, it's just one of those times you have to separate the art from the artist, but uh, sounds really great. Uh, the album is called A Christmas Gift to You from Phil Spector, and it, it has a lot of the artists that he was producing at the time. It was from uh, 1963. It had the Ronettes, it had Darlene Love, and uh, there's a group called Bob B. Socks and the Blue Jeans. I don't, I, I don't know anything about them outside that Christmas album, but really the Ronettes and Darlene Love, they both absolutely shine on this album. Uh, it was just meant for their voices. I, I love the version of Winter Wonderland on that album. Uh, Sleigh Ride, of course, is a classic. Oh, and I have to mention Frosty the Snowman by the Ronettes on there, because Ronnie Spector sings that like with the thickest New York accent. Frosty the Snowman! It's, oh, God. It, it cracks me up every time. <laughs> I don't know if she did that intentionally or what, but... Uh, Probably the crown jewel in that album, there's a song that Darlene Love just sings the living daylights out of. It's called Christmas, Baby Please Come Home. I guess the claim to fame of that song, other than being like probably the standout track from that album, is Darlene Love would sing that song on The Late Show with David Letterman every year. And uh, that's something else my wife and I love to do. We watch David Letterman's last show before Christmas every year. Uh, yeah, obviously he's been off the air for a few years, but we still have the last one he did, TiVo, and we still watch it every year. And uh, that's a great thing to watch. What happens is those of you who never, who weren't Letterman fans, I, I can't say I was a Letterman fan necessarily, but I did watch him. Letterman's tradition was he would have a Christmas tree in the studio, not too far from his desk. And uh, at some point during the season, he would have... A pizza put on top of the tree a pizza courtesy of one of the one of the nearby pizza parlors it might have been from hello deli now that i think about it which was next door to him and there would also be a souvenir empire state building for one of the tacky souvenir shops nearby and then rupert from hello deli would put a meatball on top of the empire state building and then he'd put meat sauce on top of it and it would just sit and the tree would just sit there for a week and uh what would happen then is the last show before Christmas, one year he had uh, Vinny Testaverde, the quarterback, as a guest, and he wanted to have Vinny throw a football and knock the meatball off the Empire State Building on the tree. And so Vinny's there, he's throwing the football, and he's just missing it badly. So Jay Thomas, who was another guest that night, came out from backstage and he was all ticked off he's like come on you can't you can't hit that thing so jay thomas picked up a football and threw it at the tree and hit the meatball and knocked it off on the very first try <laughs> so letterman made that a tradition every year the last show before christmas he would have jay thomas as his guest and darlene love as the musical guest the tradition was this jay thomas would tell a Lone Ranger story. I'm not going to tell that story, but I strongly suggest you go to YouTube, do a search for Jay Thomas Lone Ranger story. It's a classic. It is wonderful. It's got a great punchline to it. 
So Jay Thomas would tell his Lone Ranger story, and then he and David Letterman would take turns throwing a football at the meatball on top of the tree and try to knock it out. And uh, that would happen every year. I think, oh, there was one year, uh, one of the more recent years of the late show with David Letterman when uh, Jay Thomas couldn't be there. He was having surgery or something. So John McEnroe took his place and told the Lone Ranger story and threw the football. (laughs) At the end of the show, Darlene Love would sing Christmas, Baby Please Come Home, which David Letterman says is the only Christmas song you ever need. Because it was Darlene Love, and because you just cannot beat Darlene Love, so much of the studio would be used, there'd be musicians all over the place, and I think the last time she was on, she was actually standing on top of a grand piano with a Christmas tree, and she just sang the crap out of it. Uh, the, she she doesn't hit the high notes that she used to back in the 60s nowadays, but still, she's still an amazing singer. It's just an amazing thing to watch and listen to, just Darlene Love singing Christmas, Baby Please Come Home. And the thing is, like, she reserved that song just for The Late Show with David Letterman. She said that's the only TV show she would ever sing that song on. She's like, that's just for you, Dave. When she does concerts, she does the song, but when she's on TV, she'll sing something else. But uh, so I just that's a, a, a Christmas musical thing that I love that I kind of treasure. Um, other stuff that I kind of like around Christmas time uh, because I am a Beatles fan, I do like to uh, listen to some of the recordings they made for their fan club. Uh, which, oh, their fan club recordings are finally being reissued soon. In fact, probably, I by the time you hear this, they should be in my hands uh, on colored vinyl, I think. So, ooh, that's going to be fun. Uh, what the Beatles would do at the end of every year is they would record a special record that would be sent out to fan club members. Uh, from 1963, 64, and 65, it was just basically all kinds of random goofiness. They were, they'd just say, hey, thank you for the wonderful year, and, you know, it's been a great year, blah, 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 blah. And uh, they, they'd be kind of goofy, especially in 1965. They sounded like they were under the influence of certain uh, herbs. <laughs> and then 1966 and 1967, their Christmas recordings were weird, they do these really weird sketches and it's really interesting because you can actually tell the progression of the band in 1963 their messages were very very giddy because they were they had just gotten huge and they didn't quite know how to handle themselves yet 1964 they were kind of used to all the fame and everything and they were they were still thankful but they were still kind of they they knew how to deal with the fame and you could tell by listening to their christmas recording and of course they sounded kind of stoned in the 1965 recording <laughs> and in 1966 and 1967 their recordings were kind of bizarre a little bit on the psychedelic side and then in 1968 uh you could tell they were kind of starting to drift apart because Instead of having one group recording, there were four separate recordings done by each Beatle, and the same thing in 1969. So you can actually hear how you can actually hear the story of the Beatles just by listening to their Christmas recordings. My wife and I also like to listen to the Christmas album the Beach Boys did in 1964, and it's interesting how they did that because side one, for the most part, is stuff done in the, in the style of the Beach Boys, you know, with guitars, drums, and everything. And side two is basically kind of, it's kind of schmaltzy and it sounds like side two is meant to appeal to the grown-ups because it's very orchestral and it's not rock and roll at all. It's just an orchestra with the Beach Boys singing to it and uh, 
I think my first exposure to it was when I heard their version of We Three Kings on the radio. And I remember thinking, oh my God, this is just gorgeous. Because the harmonies were just so rich. The orchestral arrangement was great. So I remember uh, I heard it on the radio and I ran and found a blank tape and threw it in and start and hit record so I could have like half of the song. <laughs> but um, I was probably 14, 15 at the time. But, uh, and uh, the Beach Boys did record another Christmas album in 1977. And um, Beach Boys fans don't like to talk about that one. It was it was never actually released. And if you ever heard the bootleg recordings of it, you can kind of tell why it's kind of embarrassingly bad. They actually did release the more listenable tracks from it um, in 1998. But uh, yeah, it's not something you necessarily want to listen to. <laughs> but another Christmas album from the 60s that I love. The Ventures did a Christmas album, I think, in 1965. It's really cool. It's guitar instrumentals, basically. And they're all done in the style of other songs. Like uh, Sleigh Ride, for example, is done in the style of Walk, Don't Run, which is The Ventures' biggest remembered hit. Eh, maybe the Hawaii Five-O theme is a more remembered I don't know, but... Uh, and let's see, there was, um, I think, Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer, I think, done in the style of I Feel Fine by The Beatles. Um... What Child Is This Done in the Style of She's Not There by the Zombies? So, uh, it's it's a fun listen. It's a it's a very fun listen. Um, sometimes we spin uh, one of Brian Setzer's Christmas albums. Those are fun too. It's we we kind of we kind of like how he melded his kind of swing sound with Christmas. It sounds really cool. And one other thing I should probably mention, uh, my wife and I like the Monkees a lot, but they never really did a Christmas album. They did a couple of Christmas tunes, like in, in the uh, 80s. They did a, I think it was the 80s, they had a big reunion and uh, how, like, Monkey Mania, like, started up again in the 80s because of MTV and Nickelodeon and things showing their show again. But uh, it turns out they didn't release it as a single in the, in the end. They released Daydream Believer, but with a new drum track to make it sound slightly 80s. But, uh... There was one song they did, they actually did it on the Christmas episode of their TV show in their second season. Butch Patrick, the kid who played Eddie Munster, was in the episode and he played a, a spoiled rich kid that the monkeys were hired to basically babysit. <laughs> and uh, he he was a spoiled rich kid who didn't like Christmas and so the monkeys, is, like they spent the episode trying to show him why Christmas is important and uh, why he should have fun and everything. And at the very end of the episode, after like the plot's over and everything, it's just the four monkeys standing around a microphone and they're singing a cappella, this really old Spanish Christmas carol called Ryuch. I think it's pronounced Ryushiu, and four-part harmony just sounding absolutely amazing with uh, Mickey Dolan singing the, the verses by himself in some dialect of Spanish. Another song that I kind of like to dig out, it's uh, by Peter, Paul, and Mary, and it's called A Soul in S-O-A-L-I-N apostrophe. From what I understand, what it was, was it was something put together by a friend of theirs who was a guitar teacher, and he would use it as kind of finger-picking exercises. So they're like, hmm, let's record that. What's interesting about it is if you listen to the chorus, 
the chorus is about going door to door and asking for what's called a soul cake. And I did some research and it turns out that a soul cake is kind of a fruit pastry some centuries ago, like probably the 1800s, maybe the 1700s. It was traditional for kids to go out door to door and ask for soul cakes. And they're called soul cakes because the belief was that when you ate one of these soul cakes, somebody's soul would be saved from purgatory. So I'm guessing this was a very Catholic thing, given uh, my Catholic upbringing and what I know. <laughs> and going door to door for soul cakes eventually evolved into another practice that we now know as trick-or-treating. So what's interesting is this Peter, Paul, and Mary song that gets played during Christmas is actually more of a Halloween song, at least with the uh, the chorus. And I think the reason it gets lumped in with Christmas is because, well, one of the verses of the song is a reworking of a verse from the song Christmas is a Comin', even though Christmas isn't mentioned in the lyrics that they use. And also at the very end, there's a little bit of uh, God Rescue Merry Gentlemen mentioned in there, so I think that's probably why it's lumped in with Christmas. But uh, it's a very hypnotic song, and of course, three-part harmony, which I really love a lot. And I always liked that song. But um, hey, that's just some, I just wanted to share some of that since uh, I'm really into music, and you know, music and the holidays kind of go together, so there you have it. This portion of the episode is for people who don't really know the backstories of a lot of this stuff. So a lot of you might already know this, but for those of you who don't know, you're probably thinking, well, Santa Simon, this is obviously based on Simon, right? Well, yeah, kind of, sort of. But if we go even further back, it all started with a game called Touch Me. And you're probably thinking, oh, the little handheld thing? I thought that was a copy of Simon. Well, <laughs> If you go back even further than that, there was an arcade game called Touch Me that came before the Simon game. In 1974, June of 1974, Atari released an arcade game called Touch Me. AtariMuseum.com seems to imply that the exact release date is June 11th, but I haven't been able to confirm or deny that. But in case you've never seen one of these things, Touch Me kind of resembled a podium, really. The panel had a yellow background with the words touch me on the top half and lowercase um, curved letters, uh, very of the time, if you ask me. And touch me was touch hyphen me. To the right of the title on the panel, you see the following bulleted instructions. Repeat computer sound and light sequences by pushing corresponding buttons. No punctuation other than the apostrophe. Do not push buttons until your turn light is on. Again, no ending punctuation. You are allowed three mistakes. No punctuation again. One, two, or four people can play. And uh, again, no ending punctuation. And of course, I have to stamp my fingers for the next bullet. Insert quarter in slot above. And again, no punctuation. And uh, all of that is in capitalized letters. And uh, sure enough, regarding that last bullet point on the very top of the machine and to the right, there is a big yellow tag labeled 25 cents, and it has a coin slot right next to it. Then if you look under the instructions, there's a series of yellow rectangles with black text, and they are illuminated by light bulbs at the appropriate times. On the left, you have lights that say, wait, and your turn. Next is an LED display, a short one labeled score. And to the right of the LED are three lights, miss one, miss two, and game over. 
On the bottom half of the panel, there are four large circular buttons outlined in thick yellow circles, circles, circles bordered in black that would light up. Um, Atari really liked yellow for this game. <laughs> the buttons from left to right are yellow, orange, red, and green. And between the orange and red buttons is the Atari Fuji symbol. To play Touch Me, you drop a quarter into the slot, and the object of the game is to repeat a pattern of lights and sounds that the machine gives you. The sounds themselves are just four different tones. Uh, they're technically all the same notes, but they're in different octaves. <laughs> Every time you successfully repeat the pattern, the computer gives you that same pattern, but with one additional light and sound, all starting with just one on the first round. After the machine gives you a pattern, you repeat the pattern after the your turn light lights up. Touch Me wasn't a success in the arcades, but that didn't stop Atari from releasing a handheld version in 1978, undoubtedly to compete in the booming handheld market dominated by LED sports games by the likes of uh, Mattel and Coleco. But what about the handheld game? Well, it was programmed by Todd Fry. You might know that name from the Atari 2600 Pac-Man. The handheld version of Touch Me introduced a couple of features that you didn't have in the arcade version. There were skill levels and game variations. Game 1 is what they called Basic Touch Me. Oh, and by the way, for the handheld version, the hyphen in the title is gone, and now Touch and Me are capitalized. But Basic Touch Me is the classic, you get a pattern, you repeat the pattern, computer gives you same pattern with one additional item, you repeat that pattern, etc. type of game. Game 2 is the same, except that you actually create the pattern, and then every time you repeat the pattern, you have to add one more element. For example, you might have a pattern going that goes green, blue, blue, red. So on your next turn, you're going to hit green, blue, blue, red, and then another button, and so on and so on. Game 3, in my opinion, seems to be more trouble than it's worth. It's a multiplayer variation in which in a three- or four-player game, each player is in charge of one button, while in a two-player game, each player is responsible for two buttons. Seems kind of weird for a handheld game. I, the logistics must be a nightmare, but hey, that's just one guy's opinion. Game 3, I said, is a multiplayer game. Well, games 1 and 2 also have multiplayer variations as well. To start a game, you hit the start button, and at that point, there are several skill levels that appear on the screen one at a time. You will see the different skill levels, like 8 will show up on the screen, then it'll disappear, and then 16, and then 32, and then 99, and repeat. And when you see the skill level you want, you press the skill button to lock it in. Games 1 and 3 have those four skill levels, 8, 16, 32, and 99. Game 2 does not have 99, though. And those are kind of odd for skill levels. Well, thing is, technically the numbers actually refer to the largest pattern that you'll have. For example, if you choose skill level 32, that means that if you should make it that far, the largest pattern you will get will have 32 items in it. Back in the late 70s, my brother, who, uh, as I mentioned before, is 10 years older than me, he was into all those handhelds. He had all the Mattel ones. He had basketball, football, baseball, auto racing. And he also had the Atari Touch Me. And uh, I honestly don't remember a heck of a lot about it, though. Um, everything I've mentioned here about the handheld Touch Me, I found out from research. It's not from my own memories. But I mentioned earlier that Touch Me was not a success in the arcade. So... Why did Atari decide to release it as a handheld if it wasn't a success? 
Well, it was because of something else that was successful, an electronic game called Simon. Legendary video game pioneer Ralph Baer saw the arcade touch me, and he felt that the game's concept could have some potential in a non-arcade setting. So he took the concept over to Howard J. Morrison, and uh, both Ralph and Howard worked for toy mogul Marvin Glass over at Marvin Glass & Associates in downtown Chicago. As you undoubtedly know, the result of Ralph and Howard's collaboration was extremely successful when Milton Bradley released it as Simon in 1977. Because it was such a hit, Milton Bradley released Super Simon in 1979, and that was designed specifically to encourage competitive play. And those games were followed with Pocket Simon. Um, I had a Pocket Simon in the early 80s, and uh, I can tell you it's definitely small and it's definitely a handheld, but by no means did it fit in any pocket, though. (laughs) There have since been many variations of Simon, and the game continues to be produced to this day by Hasbro, who bought out Milton Bradley in 1984. So it was the success of Simon that prompted Atari to revisit Touch Me, but as a handheld game in 1978. So, hey, we talked about Touch Me and we talked about Simon. So, going to share um, another Christmas recollection, I guess, with you. And then after that, let's talk about Santa Simon for the Atari 7800. I think I talked about this in the episode zero of this podcast, Christmas 1982. Coleco had just released um, some tabletop versions of some classic arcade games. And of course, I wanted the Pac-Man one. Here's the thing, though. I never actually saw one of those things in action. But all that I heard, people were like, oh, yeah, it looks just like the arcade game. And um, I thought they meant that it looked like the arcade game all the way through, not just the outer plastic of it, but also the actual gameplay. The thing I'd like to talk about is, you know how people have been hacking these Coleco tabletop games with Raspberry Pi running RetroPie? That's kind of what I thought it was. I thought it was basically a miniature emulated version of the actual Pac-Man game. I didn't know it was the red LED thing, but that was all I wanted for Christmas. That's all I asked for, just the Pac-Man thing. I was, um, I was eight years old. Yeah, Christmas 82, I was eight years old. And what my family typically did for Christmas was uh, we'd exchange presents on Christmas Eve. That's My wife's family did that too, and that's still something that uh, the two of us uphold. So. But that was what we would do. We would open up Christmas presents on Christmas Eve, and on Christmas Day, that was when I would open up presents from Santa. And even though I kind of didn't really believe in Santa Claus anymore at this point, there was I still had to play along. Hey, we got some, there's some presents from Santa here. And... Uh, there was a big package addressed to my brother and me. And my brother, I mentioned before, he's 10 years older than me, but uh, it's this big package. And uh, it was the last thing we opened. And I know I did notice that I didn't get the Coleco thing, but surprisingly, I, w- I was still actually pretty happy with, with uh, what I got so far. <laughs> and we we're both like, what the heck could this be? And we open it up, we tear like one piece of paper up, and we see that it is... An Atari 2600, the, one of the four switchers, and I think we both needed to change our pants after that. And in unison, my brother and I said, Atari! I, I was just shocked because I didn't think my parents would ever allow one of those things in the house. I remember my brother had a, a, a Pong console. I don't remember. I think it was a Kmart manufactured one, and they made him get rid of it. 
but <laughs> anyway, so there it was. I was like, holy crap, I can't believe I have an Atari now. Oh, man, all my friends who don't have one are going to be so jealous, and all my friends who do have one are going to say, oh, great, great, you have an Atari now. Let's trade games and things. And inside the box, not only was the pack-in combat in there, but also a copy of Pac-Man. Yep, Atari 2600 Pac-Man, and let me tell you, I absolutely loved it. I knew it was nothing like the arcade Pac-Man. I had played the arcade Pac-Man, but that was my favorite game, and I wanted it so badly, and now I could play a version of it on the 2600. And I played the 2600 version of Pac-Man before. I knew it was so much different, but I didn't care, because even at eight years old, I was like, well, there's only so much you can do on an Atari 2600. I'm totally okay with that. There we go. We, we hooked it up right away. We played a few games of combat. We played a few games of Pac-Man. And of course, I had to be dragged away from it so I could wash up and get ready for family to come over. My grandparents, uncles and aunts and cousins and things. And uh, man, that was awesome. And uh, of course, like after dinner, I remember when nobody was really paying any attention. They were just kind of all en engrossed into uh, conversation and playing cards. Uh, Ever noticed that? Like at family gatherings, the name of the game you're playing is cards. But, <laughs> oh man, but uh, everybody was just doing their own thing. So I, I kind of snuck over and I kind of motioned my cousins, hey, come on, come on over. Let's play, let's play some Atari. So that's what we did. We spent the rest of the day just playing combat and Pac Man. And uh, my cousins had already long had an Atari with several games, but they're like, hey, yeah, let's play some Atari. <laughs> And uh, they, they had a six switcher. I don't know if it was a light or heavy, to be quite honest. But, uh, oh, man, I wonder if uh, at least my uncle still has that thing. I'll have to ask him. Uh, oh, I just realized that tomorrow's his birthday. Uh, I'll have to give him a call. Anyway, um, we just spent the rest of the day just, like, frying our brains on combat and Pac-Man. And uh, my cousins were taking turns. My brother was taking a turn. Of course, I was getting a little bit whiny. I was like, hey, when do I get to play? And my uncle just looked at me and he said, dude... You have a week off. You're going to have plenty of time to play this stuff. And I was like, fine. <laughs> and um, it was pretty typical for my brother and me to get a few dollars as Christmas presents from uh, relatives. Like, I think sometimes, like, my grandmother would uh, slip us a Christmas card with, like, $10 in it or something. So so what happened was uh, there's a store where we lived. We lived in Bourbonnet, Illinois at the time, which is about 60 miles south of Chicago. And the next town over was Bradley. And in Bradley, there was a small shopping center that had a store called Kay's Merchandise Mart, which was, uh, if, if you know what service merchandise was like, it was just like that. It was just like service merchandise. But they had a sale on Atari games. So my brother said, hey, you know what we should do? Any money that we got for Christmas, we should put it together and go to Kay's and get a few games. And I was like, yeah, let's do that. So we had enough money for three Atari games that were, that were on sale. I really wanted to get Defender, but my brother really wanted Missile Command. Uh, Missile Command won out because it was cheaper, which I was fine with. I liked Missile Command, so I was like, okay, I totally understand. And I don't know why, but my brother said, okay, we have a choice between Outlaw and Superman. And I said, you know what? Let's let's get Outlaw. I played Outlaw before. I know how that works. I don't know if I can get into Superman. He's like, okay, let's get Outlaw. And the third game we got was uh, Street Racer. I don't remember why we chose Street Racer. I think it might have been just simply because we wanted an excuse to use the paddle controllers. So the first five games on Atari that we had were Combat, Pac-Man, Street Racer, Missile Command, and Outlaw. 
So we had those to uh, kill some time with for a while. I don't remember what we got after that, but um, I used to know, like, the first, like, 15 Atari games I had in the exact order I got them. But, uh, oh, well, that was a really great Christmas. Um, and I do remember the following Mother's Day, my grandmother and mother went out shopping. And when they came back, they handed me a copy of Ms. Pac-Man for the 2600, and I was just so happy. And I had never seen it yet. It had just come out, and I remember kind of holding my breath. I was like, okay, now is this going to be like Pac-Man, and people are going to complain about it? And then when I loaded it up, I was like, oh, this is really good. So, But uh, anyway, this isn't about Mother's Day. This is about Christmas. But uh, the next Christmas also had a nice Atari-related story. Once again, it was Christmas Eve, we exchanged presents, and then the next day, even though I clearly did not believe in Santa Claus anymore, I still had to play along with it and open up gifts from Santa. For Christmas 1983, all I wanted was Qbert for the Atari, because Qbert had become one of my favorite arcade games, and I was so excited when I heard it was coming out for the Atari. And I think I told this story too, but it's worth telling again, especially for people who haven't heard uh, episode zero, which is when I think I might have talked about it. Yeah, that was the bonk episode, I don't remember. But my next door neighbors had gotten an Atari 2600 uh, not terribly long after uh, I got mine. Both of us, we had small collections, but uh, even though we had small collections, we didn't have many games in common. So it was very frequent for us to just walk over next door and say, hey, you want to do a want to do a trade and you know I'd borrow one of his and he'd borrow one of mine and uh, sometimes what he would do is he would borrow cartridges from a friend of his who lived a few blocks over his friend I don't remember his friend's first name he'd just say oh yeah I got these games from Petrowski you want to try them out and I had never met this Petrowski character but uh, and because this is the Chicago metro region Petrowski is spelled P-I-E-T-R-A-C-Z-E-W-S-K-I but somehow it was pronounced Petrowski uh, then again, my name is S-E-A-N, it's pronounced Sean, go figure that. So, anyway, word had gotten out that Petrowski got Cuber, but he wasn't going to let anybody borrow it. He said, this is not leaving my house. So, word had it that he got it, and he wasn't going to let anybody take it out of his house. So, that kind of told everybody, ooh, it must be really good then. So, that is all I wanted for Christmas. And there's a picture of, in fact, I might have shared this before, but there's a picture of me in my pajamas after, I think I was wearing Pac-Man pajamas, I might be wrong though, but I had just opened up Cubert for the Atari 2600. I was really happy to, to get that. And there's a picture of me holding it up and there in, in the picture you can see my dad's ever, well back then, ever present cigarette. He doesn't smoke anymore. But <laughs> classic 80s picture, shag rug and everything. It's, it's, it's classic. And uh, I was actually really happy with it. I said, well, this isn't what I hoped it would be, but it's still pretty good. I, I still like this game, and I played a lot of Qbert. And uh, what was really cool is I was like, man, this is great. I got Qbert for the 2600, and I was, again, showering and getting ready. I was getting dressed, getting ready for family to come over again. And my dad came into my room, and he said, hey, you know what? There's one present we forgot to give you. It was a 13 by 13 square thing, so it was obviously a record album. And it was wrapped either in aluminum foil or silver wrapping or something. So I opened it then and there, and it was Thriller by Michael Jackson. And oh my god, how many times I played that thing. I still have it, too. That was just a great Christmas. I got a great Atari 2600 game, and I got one of the greatest albums ever recorded. 
But anyway, time goes by. 1986 happens. I'm still playing Atari, but uh, my dad had gotten a job 30 miles away up in uh, Joliet, Illinois, a little bit closer to Chicago. There wasn't a single day in my life when I could not wait for the day that I no longer lived in Bourbonnet or anywhere near the Kankakee area of Illinois. So to me, Joliet was like the promised land. So we moved to Joliet. I remember that. And uh, I remember that there was this big ad campaign. The fun is back. Oh, yes, series. Uh, there was a, a new version of the Atari 2600 out. And uh, they were touting it that it was just under $50. And But uh, so Atari was still a thing. And I was still playing it. I didn't really care much for the Nintendo Entertainment System. So I didn't have one of those. But... I was, I think it was KB Toys in one of the two malls in town. Yeah, that's right. We went from a town that didn't have a mall at all to a town that had two malls. But I was at KB Toys and I, I, I could have sworn, I was like, wait a minute, is that Junior Pac-Man for 2600? I, I, I might have been seeing things, but hey, that's how things were. This had to have been in 1987, actually, when I saw that. So, of course, I wanted nothing but Junior Pac-Man for Christmas that year. That's all I wanted. Junior Pac-Man for the 2600 because I didn't know it was out. It's like, holy crap, how did I miss that? And I got that for Christmas in uh, 1987. I got Junior Pac-Man and my brother got me Crystal Castles and I played both of them and I loved both of them. And uh, to to this day, I feel that Junior Pac-Man is one of the best arcade to 2600 conversions from that original Atari era. It's fantastic. I loved it then, and I still love it to this day. And I remember my mom asked me, like, a little bit later, she said, uh, so how do you like that uh, that Junior Pac-Man game we got you? And I said, you know what? I think this is the best Atari game. And my mom said, yeah, the guy at the store said the same thing. And I think that same year, I also got a couple of craft joysticks. Uh, If you've never seen these things, they're they're uh, right-handed joysticks with the uh, fire button in the upper left. Uh, the base is kind of a beige color, and the button is a square black button. And the joysticks were kind of short. And on the bottom of them, there was a little ring you could rotate that would switch it between four-way and eight-way. Uh, I didn't think that part worked very well, but those were really good joysticks. I, I, I think the fire buttons wore out on mine or something, but I really love those little things. I'm going to see if I can get a couple of them. And uh, what was really cool is that the cables on those things were pretty long so I could uh, sit back on the couch while the console was uh, about 10 feet away on the, under the TV and I, it was great for games that uh, the fire button would start so that, I think that's the most recent Atari memory that I have and uh, in terms of Christmas and video games, well I've mentioned Underground Retrocade many times in this podcast and in fact they sponsor Pie Factory Podcast but I love Underground Retrocade. It's my favorite place to go play arcade games. For the past few years, my wife has been getting me a gift certificate to that place, so I hope that continues. So uh, that's basically video games and Christmas memories for me. And uh, I just have one more thing to say in that regard. And I, I just remember that uh, not long after I got the Atari 2600 for Christmas, my dad said, you know, um, your mother and I asked around about that Coleco Pac-Man you wanted. Uh, we, a couple of friends of ours who got that for their kids for birthdays and other things, they said, you know what, that the sound on that thing is so awful and annoying, it gives us such a headache. 
my dad said, so your mother and I figured it would be a better investment just to get you an Atari. And he was right. He was absolutely right. So what can I say? Kids, if you're listening to this podcast, listen to your parents. They know what they're talking about. (sighs) But you know what? Actually, now that I think about it, there is one more video game related memory for Christmas that I should share. Uh, And that was uh, last year, actually, 2016, when the Atari Flashback Portable came out. I was really excited about that. Now, I never understood why all these, like, massive Atari fans are sweeping up all the flashbacks and then complaining about most of them. It's uh, it's like, dude, um, you have an actual Atari. Why don't you just use that? But uh, I don't know. I'm sure there are some kind of reasons. Uh, I can understand the flashback, too, because that one... You can actually add a cartridge port to it and turn it into a fully functioning 2600. But, uh, and that's really why I can totally see somebody going crazy for the concept of the flashback portable because at least last year's edition had a SD card slot on it so you could add whatever ROMs you wanted and play pretty much any Atari 2600 game you wanted, providing it was compatible. My mother actually asked me for every year I get this call. Hey, what can my what can your dad and I get you for Christmas? And I, I never really know because you know, there's nothing really that I want. Maybe gift cards or something. My mother does not like getting gift cards. She's like, oh, I, I'll give you cash. You can do whatever you want with that. And, and my parents usually do give us uh, cash for Christmas in addition to presents. Like uh, we'll get presents, and then at the end, and then afterwards we get envelopes with. Uh, surprisingly generous in amount of cash my parents have never been rich but um i i get a nice envelope my wife does my brother and his wife get their own envelopes as well i think it, it's a tradition started by my grandparents because one year they just started giving envelopes to all of their kids and they said here you go here's here's uh, some cash for christmas for you and if you want to divide it up among your family go right ahead and that's uh, what my parents did my brother and i usually got a share of that as well so that was interesting. I, I don't know. Maybe that's why they started doing that. I don't know. But uh, but anyway, I said, Mom, I really don't... There's really nothing that I really want. And she, and she said, what about that Nintendo thing that's out? And that was that uh, mini Nintendo thing that everybody went nuts for. And the thing is, I never cared for Nintendo. I, I had an NES for a short time about a year or two ago, and I just didn't like it. I didn't want one when it came out, and I still don't want one. And they said, no, I don't like uh, Ninten- uh, the Nintendo stuff. I, and then I was like, wait a minute, actually, you know what? There's the Atari Flashback Portable coming out. I would love to have that. And sure enough, Christmas comes and I get that from my parents, along with a few other presents and, of course, the annual envelope. And I remember when I opened it, my wife looked at it and she said, thank God, because your son would not shut up about that thing for the past month. <laughs> so, And uh, I really do like that thing a lot. And I'm really surprised that I do because it has the same sound emulation problem that the uh, At Games Sega Genesis handheld portable had. And that the sound emulation wasn't quite right. It was either slow or just low pitched. But I still really like this thing. And what's really cool is that there are some uh, creative folks on Atari Age who were able to get some of the games that wouldn't work. They were able to hack them into games that actually would work on that uh, little device. I actually keep it next to the bed. My wife and I have a bookcase next to the bed, and I keep it there. So uh, if I get insomnia or if I'm just not ready to go to sleep yet, I'll just reach over, grab the flashback portable, and play uh, maybe video pinball or something on it. I love that sucker. So... uh, 
And, and plus, I figured I shouldn't get it myself. It was my parents that got me the 2600 in the first place. They got me the Qbert for it. They got me Junior Pac-Man and joysticks for, for that. So it's like, you know what? Next Atari thing, my parents have to get it. And sure enough, they did. The flashback portable. And still like it very much. And uh, what else can I say about that? So that I think that's my most recent video game. Well, it has to be because it's the most recent Christmas that's happened before the recording of this episode. The pace, you follow right along. Light the lights that Simon lights or he'll tell you that you're wrong. Simon's a computer. Simon has a brain. To either do what Simon says or else go down the drain. Santa Simon was released in the Atari Age store for the holiday season in 2006. The game was programmed by Schmutzpuppa. That's the same guy who did the yet-to-be-released Froggy that's uh, got people on the edges of their seats. But anyway, Santa Simon was first discussed on Atari Age on December 19th that year, when Atari Age user Drac is back mentioned that he noticed the game was in the store, and he wondered where it came from. Schmutzpuppa stepped forward and said that it was his game and that he'd be posting a ROM soon, and he did just that on December 23rd. Schmutzpuppa said that the inspiration for Santa Simon was an online flash game called Christmas Simon, well, spelled Xmas Simon. The link that he posted is uh, dead, basically, but I was able to find that game with the, the Wayback Machine on archive.org. The only thing is that link that I was able to, to find it on is from 2005, and uh, it's been 12 years now, and I couldn't actually get the game to work. I was able to get it to load, but it wouldn't actually function. It might be that 2005 Flash is not compatible with 2017 Flash. But uh, if you find a way to get it working, let me know. But um, anyway, um, Schmutzpuppa had found that game, Christmas Simon, the previous month, and he thought it would be a simple and nice idea for the 7800. And he actually started working on Santa Simon the night that he found Christmas Simon. And it took him all of two days to get the main programming done. However, because he doesn't feel he's a great artist, Schmutzpuppa scoured the web for some graphics he could use for the game. He found a few royalty-free images by anonymous designers and sized those images down for use on the Atari 7800. Schmutzpuppa realized he could have the game finished in time for Christmas, so he consulted with Albert on Atari Age about the possibility of releasing the game in the Atari Age store. Albert was open to the idea, and he even offered some feedback on the work in progress. Albert recommended commissioning Atari Age user Atari Boy to do the label design, and Schmutzpuppa did follow that recommendation. But let's talk about the actual game. When you start it up, as usual, you get the Atari Fuji logo, and after that, there's a custom Atari Age splash screen. From then on, the game consists of one screen that doubles both as an attract screen and the gameplay screen. The screen has four figures on a snow-covered ground. On the left is an animated, smiling evergreen tree with arms. A little bit up and to the right, kind of in the middle, is a reindeer. On the far right you have Santa Claus, and in the middle near the bottom is a snowman. So you have basically those four figures arranged in kind of sort of a skewed diamond. The gameplay follows that of Touch Me and Simon. You're given a pattern and you have to repeat it. And of course, the next time you're given a pattern, there's one more thing in it. The pattern goes by which characters are animated in which order. The tree's animation has the sound of sleigh bells. The reindeer animation makes kind of a buzzing sound. 
The snowman tips his hat and utters kind of a flirty vocalization, for lack of a better description. And Santa does his famous ho, ho, ho. (laughs) To repeat the pattern, you simply move the joystick to the position of the character you want. For example, if you get the tree animation followed by the reindeer animation, you'll move the joystick left and then up, because the tree is to the left, the reindeer is near the middle and above the snowman. On the bottom of the screen, your score is on the left. You get one point for each successfully repeated pattern. The high score is on the right. Um, I can't confirm it, but this might actually uh, be compatible with one of the high score saving devices, whether it be the high score cart, the uh, save key, or the XM, or the Atari Vox. I'm not 100% sure about that. Anyway, in the middle of the bottom portion of the screen, there's a message. If you are being given a pattern, the message is in red, and it says, Look out! When it's your turn to repeat the pattern back, you see a green message that says, Your turn. And really, that's all there is to Santa Simon. And interesting that even though the Simon concept originated with Atari, but the name of this game used the Simon name instead. Then again, would you really want a game called Santa Touch Me? Uh, I, I don't know about that. Schmutzpuppa said that there's a hidden screen in the game and that it's easy to find. I um, haven't found it yet, and since this was a very limited edition game, there's not a lot of discussion about it. I don't own a copy, unfortunately, because, well, when the game was out, I didn't yet have an Atari 7800, so why would I have bought it? (laughs) But anyway, I do have the ROM, and I've played it on my 7800 on the Mateo's uh, 16-in-1 multi-cart. There was recent activity, though, as on May 11th of this year, Atari Age user Rev Eng, who, uh, if I remember correctly, was one of the geniuses behind the homebrew Dungeon Stalker, but he made a tweak to Santa Simon and hopes to make the ROM function better on some 7800s that were reported to have not been able to successfully play the game. And heck, I should probably talk about the cartridge itself. Well, it's, um basically got very customized artwork. It doesn't look anything like what an Atari 7800 cartridge normally would look like. The end label is a kind of snowy sky background with the words Santa Simon on it, Santa in green, Simon in red. And that same kind of thing appears on the top of the front level. There's a snowy sky background and it has the characters from the game, the reindeer, the Christmas tree, Santa, and the snowman on their snowy field and they are drawn in the same arrangement that they are in the game. It's a very nice drawing, too. Very nice. And um, it says on the bottom left, for use with the Atari 7800 Pro system, copyright 2006, Matthias Lutke. Pardon me if I'm mispronouncing that. I'm not, I don't really speak German. <laughs> um, but uh, that's, of course, Schmutzpuppa's real name. And in the lower right corner, it says Atari Age. As far as I know, there was no manual published for this game, but hey, it's easy enough to figure out without one, especially if you've listened to this episode of this podcast. Oh, by the way, the sound effects I mentioned, they're digitized. And in the Santa Simon thread in Atari Age, people were commenting about how amazing the sound is, because the sound, well, it's produced entirely by the built-in Tia chip on the 7800. There's no pokey in the game at all. So there you go. That's uh, everything you need to know about Santa Simon. And um, hey, you know what? We might as well talk a little bit more about some Christmassy stuff, shall we? As with many people who, well, at least don't hate Christmas, (laughs) there are a lot of Christmas TV specials and movies that uh, I've come to love over the years. 
And I just wanted to talk about that for a moment. One that I have not seen in a while, but they used to show on TV like constantly during the season on just about every channel, It's a Wonderful Life. Uh, I never saw that until I was in high school because I thought it was just going to be some kind of sappy, silly, goofy thing that just that someone's mom would just enjoy. But I had a, I think it was my religion teacher in high school, my freshman year, talked about the plot of it once during class to... Uh, kind of explained something and I was like oh wow that sounds interesting and uh, I grew to love that movie I haven't seen it in a long time even though I have it on DVD my wife doesn't like to watch it anymore she finds it kind of overdone maybe a little bit almost depressing for a lot of the movie but um, I just think it's a it's a nice little story uh, the one thing and if those of you who've never seen It's a Wonderful Life which I doubt will be anybody listening to this but just in case there's a guy named George Bailey, and um, he runs, I, I don't know if you'd call it a bank, but he calls it, it's called a building and loan where people can store their money. And uh, long story short, due to uh, some trouble that um, he was having because there was some money that one of his relatives misplaced and all this, he was really feeling that uh, he was worthless and that he wished he'd never been born. And this is where some of the little sappiness comes in, I guess. God sent down a guardian angel to keep an eye on the guy and show him what life would be like if he had never been born. So basically, the angel, his name is uh, Clarence, grants him his wish. He said, okay, George, you've never been born. And so he takes him around town. Of course, nobody knows who he is, and he sees what happened as a result of him not being there. His brother Harry, who was a war hero, suddenly was no longer there because turns out that when George was a little kid, he rescued Harry from drowning in a frozen pond, or a semi-frozen pond as it were. But since in this alternate reality George was never born, George wasn't there to save Harry, so Harry drowned at a young age, and as a result, in World War II, all the troops that he rescued by shooting down a Japanese airplane, well he wasn't there to shoot down the Japanese airplane, so they died. When George was a little kid, his boss at the drugstore accidentally poisoned some prescriptions, and as a result, a lot of kids would have died. And of course, in the alternate reality, since George wasn't there to stop the pharmacist from accidentally poisoning the prescriptions, all those kids died, and the pharmacist was run out of business, and he was basically homeless, and all kinds of things like that. And George said, what happened to Mary? Mary being his wife, played by Donna Reed. And Clarence said, no, George, I cannot show you Mary at all. Like, Clarence had shown him all kinds of tragic, horrible, horrible things, but Clarence said, no, you do not want to know what happens to Mary. And uh, George eventually does convince Clarence to, well, reluctantly show George what happened to Mary since George was never born and Ergo was never there to marry Mary. Well... I can totally see why Clarence didn't want George to know what happened to Mary, because you know what happened to Mary? She became a librarian. Doesn't mind saying, well, George, your brother died. Well, George, your boss became a horrible, horrible person. He had a terrible reputation. Oh, the town got taken over by a really horrible person. But I can't tell you that Mary is a librarian, so... I, I don't know. I don't know what's going through some people's minds. And something else I didn't really get into until I think after my wife and I got together the first time. Miracle on 34th Street. It's another one of those movies that I avoided because I thought it was going to be so stupid and too motherly and things like that. 
And they used to show it after the Thanksgiving parade, but I don't think they show it anymore. So my wife and I, every year we watch the DVD after the uh, Thanksgiving parade on TV. But again, for those of you who never saw this movie, um, I won't give away the ending and everything, but uh, the plot of the movie centers around, well, what happens is it takes place at the Macy's Thanksgiving Day Parade. Well, the guy who was playing Santa in the Macy's Parade was drunk, and uh, there was this old gentleman who noticed that, and he reported it to the lady who was running the parade. It turns out that uh, this guy who reported the drunk Santa kind of had the white beard and everything. She's like, you know what? Why don't you play Santa for today? We need a Santa really desperately. And he's like, well, okay, I'll do the best I can. He said, I've done it before. Let me see how I can do for you. And everybody loved him. And so Macy's hired him as their own in-store Santa Claus. And uh, they found out that this guy, well, he would only go by Kris Kringle. That was his name, according to all of his files and everything. He was an elderly gentleman, but he called himself Chris Kringle, and he was telling people that he was the real Santa Claus. After a meeting with the store's psychiatrist, there was a hearing to determine whether or not he should be locked up in a mental institution because, well, he believed himself to be Santa Claus. And uh, the courtroom scenes in that movie are classic. I mean, they are, as far as I'm concerned, they rival the best courtroom scenes you'll see in, say, My Cousin Vinny. <laughs> And uh, there's so there's a lot of snarky humor in that movie. It's like you, there's so much stuff in there that I just crack up over. But maybe he's only a little crazy, like painters or composers or or some of those men in Washington. And especially how the trial turns out. I'm not well. It's a Christmas movie about Santa Claus. So gee, I wonder if the old man got thrown into the mental institution. Gee, think about it. But I think what I love most about it is what you don't actually see in the movie itself, and that is that uh, when Miracle on 34th Street first came out in theaters, it came out either in the spring or the summer, and so all the previews had to hide that it was about Christmas. And it's very interesting, because on the DVD, and something that I do every year, in fact, I'm recording this portion of the episode the Sunday before Thanksgiving. When I was a little kid, Growing up, we had HBO on our cable system, and every year HBO would show Emmett Otter's Jug Band Christmas, which was a Jim Henson Christmas special based on a children's book. And I just kind of accidentally watched it one day, and I got hooked on it, so I watched that thing every single time I could. And there were years that went by when I just kind of didn't see it, so it had to be 2006 when I was like, you know what, I haven't seen Emmett Otter's Jug Band Christmas in a long time. So I... Let's just say that um, in order to prepare to purchase it, I torrented a copy of it. I torrented a copy of the DVD. And uh, if you heard the episode zero of this podcast, you might remember that uh, there was a time that my wife and I were living apart for almost a year because, well, she, I got a promotion that moved me to Chicago, which is what I wanted because I'm from the Chicago area and I wanted to go back home. And uh, I was living in New Jersey at the time. My wife was in grad school, and she had to stay behind in New Jersey to finish up her last two semesters. And uh, it was very hard for me. And um, anyway, we'd fly out and see each other periodically, and uh, somebody was looking out for us because during that time, and we've never seen anything like it before or since, but airfares were, like, obscenely cheap going between Chicago and Newark. But I was going to go out to New Jersey before Christmas, and then the two of us would fly back on Christmas, and my wife would stay with me for a a week or two, and then she'd go back to New Jersey to resume her classes. 
So I was all excited, and I was at, I was at O'Hare waiting for my flight. Flight was delayed, and delayed and delayed. It was delayed several hours, actually. So what I did to pass the time was I watched Emmett Otter's Jug Band Christmas. And I remember watching it, and I was like, wait, I could have sworn Kermit the Frog was in this, because suddenly there was no Kermit the Frog all of a sudden. And uh, I was like, what happened here? But anyway... Since I watched Emmett Otter's Jug Band Christmas the day I was flying out to New Jersey, that is now my annual tradition. I watch Emmett Otter's Jug Band Christmas the day I go to New Jersey before Christmas. And uh, since my wife's mother lives in New Jersey, of course, we have to kind of fly back and forth for holidays and stuff. So for Thanksgiving, we go out to New Jersey to spend time with my wife's mother. And then for Christmas, she comes out to Chicago and spends time with us. But... uh, I love me the Emmett Otter's Jugman Christmas. It's a fun story, and the songs in it are really, really good. Uh, Paul Williams wrote the music, I believe. Uh, he's a very, very successful singer-songwriter. Uh, he was really big in the 70s. Yeah, he, he wrote a lot of uh, a lot of hits for people, and I think he wrote most of the Muppet stuff in their feature-length movies too. But long story short, Emmett Otter's Jug Band Christmas, um, it's uh, basically anthropomorphic otters is who the characters are. There's Emmett Otter and his mother. His mother was uh, widowed sometime before the story happened. And uh, they were very poor. And uh, despite being very poor, Emmett Otter always kept his head up. He He was always able to have a good sense of humor and everything. And they both worked odd jobs and made a few bucks now and then, just barely enough to stay alive. And there was a big contest coming up in which uh, the grand prize was $50, which to them was like a million dollars. And it was a talent show. So Emmett Otter and his friends formed a jug band to compete in the competition, unbeknownst to his mother. And unbeknownst to Emmett Otter, his mother was also considering entering the talent show and singing a song and hoping to win $50 so she could get Emmett a nice Christmas present. And Emmett wanted to get his mom a nice Christmas present. And uh, the story revolves around that. There's a lot of good humor in that movie. Um, If you like The Muppets, it's a wonderful, wonderful movie to watch. The only thing... And sure enough, it turns out that, yeah, the version of Emmett Otter's Jug Band Christmas that's out on DVD now is severely edited. What happened was Jim Henson's company some time ago sold the rights to the Muppets to Disney. And so Disney is the one who put out the Emmett Otter DVD, at least the most recent version. The thing is, though, since Emmett Otter's Jug Band Christmas wasn't technically a Muppets project... Jim Henson's company still owns Emmett Otter. And so their company put out Emmett Otter's Jug Band Christmas on DVD. But since Disney owns the Muppets, they couldn't use Kermit. So they had to edit out all of Kermit's scenes. Kermit basically narrated the story. And I've since learned that there are multiple versions of Emmett Otter's Jug Band Christmas. There was like a there's a version that was shown on HBO. There's a version that was put out on home video. There was a version that was shown on commercial TV. All these different versions had slightly different edits. So there were some songs that were in some, some songs that weren't in others. Some scenes were longer in some versions, etc. But a few years ago, I was browsing the web and I happened across somebody who had taken all of the versions of Emmett Otter's Jug Band Christmas and edited them together. So you'd have one complete version 
and uh, somebody was selling a DVD of that. There was a site that had all kinds of Christmas specials on DVD. So I ordered it. I think it cost like 25 bucks or something. And it was basically, you cho- for 25 bucks, you could get any two DVDs on the site. So I got uh, Emmett Otter's Jug Band Christmas and Santa Claus is Coming to Town, basically, because I know I have seen that. It's one of those Rankin-Bass uh, stop-motion animation things. I knew I'd seen that when I was a little kid, but it's not something they show every year, so I wanted to check it out. I was like, you know what? I'll make that my second DVD. Long story short, I can kind of see why they don't show it every year. It was not really terribly exciting. So I got the Emmett Otter DVD from this company. And by the way, the website no longer exists. They must have gotten a cease and desist or something. But uh, I do remember they urged people. They said, please buy the actual commercial product while you're buying from us. So that way the people who should be getting the money for this actually do get the money for this and the i still haven't gotten the official emmett otter dvd but uh i got the complete emmett otter and oh man i was just so happy to get that uh whoever did it like did a good job of cleaning up the vhs and everything it looks uh it looks surprisingly sharp it's not the sharpest thing in the world but it looks really good for being sourced from uh, vhs tapes and uh over-the-air recorded TV programs and things, so it was really good. I'm glad that I have a fully intact Emmett Otter with Kermit and everything. And I think, if nothing else, the claim to fame of the Emmett Otter's Jug Band Christmas that still has the Kermit scenes in it is that it's the first time you see Kermit the Frog riding a bike. And that was 1977. A lot of people think it's the Muppet movie. That was either 1979 or 1980. And my wife loves to tell how uh, when she and her dad went to see the Muppet movie when she was a little girl, the scene when Kermit was on a bike just blew her dad away. He was like, oh my God, how do they do that? How do they get him to ride a bike? And uh, this guy was an engineer for many years, so uh, Jim Henson impressed a engineer. (laughs) Yeah, Emmett Otter is one of my all-time favorite holiday things. Uh, I my wife watched it with me once, and she doesn't really understand why I like it so much, but uh, to each his own, I guess. But that is my annual tradition now with Emmett Otter. Uh, we are leaving for New Jersey on Tuesday, November 21st, for our holiday trip to New Jersey. And uh, I have Emmett Otter's Jug Band Christmas loaded up on an iPad, and I'm going to watch that during the flight to New Jersey and keep up with tradition. That has now been happening for 11 years. Wow. The other annual tradition I have is I have to watch the Mystery Science Theater 3000 version of Santa Claus Conquers the Martians. I watch it all the way through. I watch the host segments and everything. It's one of my favorite episodes. I was so thrilled when it came out on DVD. Uh, it's I don't know if it's still out, but the version I have, it's uh, called Mystery Science Theater 3000, The Essentials. It's a two-DVD set. One DVD is Santa Claus Conquers the Martians, and the other one is Manos, The Hands of Fate. Santa Claus Conquers the Martians, their take of it is, it's so hysterical. They're, the movie itself is so cheesy and bad that it's really laughable by itself. You don't really need the Mystery Science Theater 3000 clips, but I love the host segments, too. Uh, For example, there's a song presented by Crow T-Robot that he composed called Let's Have a Patrick Swayze Christmas. And on YouTube, there is a wonderful version of that song. Look it up. You know, I'll put a link in the show notes, but there's a choral version 
of Let's Have a Patrick Swayze Christmas. I think a college choir or something did it. And you have to watch it all the way through until it ends. If if you're a Mystery Science Theater 3000 fan, you absolutely must watch the entire thing all the way until the video stops. I almost, I just about fell off the couch. I was just so taken by it. <laughs> I think it was last year, a couple of friends of ours actually joined in the annual screening. Who They're also Mystery Science Theater 3000 fans, but... Uh, what I might do this year, in fact, I'm thinking of doing this. Uh, back in the 90s, uh, Sven Gulli, but many of you know who Sven Gulli is. And uh, those of you who don't, if you listen to this podcast regularly, you heard me talk about Sven Gulli a few episodes ago. He screened Santa Claus Conquers the Martians, I think, around 1996. And I still have a videotape of that. And I just might convert that to digital because I have this unending project of digitizing audio cassettes and videotapes. I haven't even started on the videotapes yet. Just to. Number one, clear some junk out of the house. Number two, just so I can have something readily available so I don't need to fire up a VCR or something. But uh, Sven Gulli, his version of it had a better print. It had slightly better quality. But uh, And what I love most about Santa Claus Conquers the Martians is that just the title gives away the ending. But hey, check it out. It's so cheesy. Uh, Pia Zadora is in it. As when she was, it was from 1964. She was a little girl. And the, there's a theme song in the movie that plays in the beginning of the movie and the end of the movie in the opening and closing credits called Hooray for Santa Claus. And it's got kind of a twist rhythm because it was 1964. And it was written by Milton DeLug. And if you have no idea who that guy is, well, he's kind of uh, one of those people who did a lot of things you've probably heard of, but he was very behind the scenes about it. Every year, I'd, I'd watch the Macy's Thanksgiving Parade, and I'd see his name at the end. I was like, oh my, and every year I forgot that he was doing the music for the parade. I was like, oh my God, that's the Santa Claus Conquers the Martians guy. And he only died just a couple of years ago. He was like in his late 90s, I think, and he was still active. It's cheesy, silly, unintentionally funny. It's all right. Where it wants to be funny, it's not, and where it doesn't want to be funny, it is. But I highly recommend it. And of course, I can't talk about TV specials and movies and things. But there are a couple that I absolutely must address. Uh, first of all, a Christmas story. Um, I was reading about this about how it didn't really do well when it was first out in the theaters. My parents and I saw it when it was first out in the theaters, and let me tell you, everybody in the world was talking about that movie and quoting lines from it that year, so I don't know where people are getting the idea that it didn't do very well. And when it came on HBO, oh my god, my mother and I had to stop everything to watch it. I was just so thrilled to see it again. That was a classic, classic movie, so I make sure that I watch that every year. Especially now that TBS, I think it's TBS, they show it uh, non-stop on Christmas. I think they call it something like 24 Hours of a Christmas Story or something. <laughs> but I loved that movie when it first came out. I mean, everybody knew then that it was going to be a classic, a huge classic on the lines of, say, Miracle on 34th Street and It's a Wonderful Life. And sure enough, it is, and it, it still is now, 34 years later. And the other thing I have to talk about, of course, A Charlie Brown Christmas, one of my favorite things ever to be aired on TV. Even though my wife and I have it on DVD, we make it a point to watch it on Christmas when it airs. What we usually do is uh, when it airs, we have pizza and root beer because that's probably what Snoopy would do. <laughs> 
because Snoopy loved pizza and he loved root beer. So we have pizza and root beer when a Charlie Brown Christmas airs. And I grew up with peanuts, as did, I'm presuming, many of you. My wife and I both grew up with peanuts. We both love Snoopy. We're both... We, we both say that Snoopy is our hero. So, uh, our favorite Peanuts character, um, my, my wife's second favorite after Snoopy is Linus, which means that she's, she particularly loves Charlie Brown Christmas because Linus has a really big moment in that special when he answers the question that Charlie Brown asks, isn't there anyone who knows what Christmas is all about? And uh, when I was a little kid, I had the 12-inch book and record version of a Charlie Brown Christmas, and that thing got so many spins on my turntable, and I still have it in my collection too, so I'm glad I'm glad that's around. Uh, the one thing I would love to see is a fully restored version of it. Something that you won't see on the airing is uh, at the very beginning when Charlie Brown and Linus get tangled up in uh was it linus's blanket i think when snoopy like runs off with it and, he, and they both get tied up in it and then snoopy just kind of throws them around in a circle you see where one of them lands i think it's charlie brown who lands has a head-on collision with a tree and then a big glop of snow falls on him and then, then the title of charlie brown christmas shows up on the screen I think it's linus that you don't see where he ends up well in the original airing in 1965 Linus collided with a billboard that was advertising Coca-Cola, who was a sponsor of the show. So that's why you don't see it anymore, because unless Coca-Cola were to advertise that on that airing, they wouldn't be able to show it. I think you can see it on YouTube. I think somebody put it up on YouTube. And something else that happens is the original airing at the end of A Charlie Brown Christmas after Hark the Herald Angels Sing, there is a message that shows up on the screen that says something like, Merry Christmas from your local Coca-Cola distributor, and that's missing from most copies of the movie, too. That's I would just love to see a fully restored version of it. And uh, going back to Linus, I have to tell this story. Um, when my wife was in college, she went to, well, the now defunct Douglas College, which was part of Rutgers University. She's very proud to be a Rutgers alum. But uh, Douglas College used to do this annual Yule Log thing where it was kind of a religious service, and it would involve singing Deck the Halls, it would involve uh, putting a log in the fireplace and lighting it and everything, and um, it would also involve that reading from the Gospel of Luke, the one that Linus recited in A Charlie Brown Christmas. Well, one year, my wife actually got to do that reading. She is so proud of that moment to this day. She loves talking about that because she did the reading. And then one of her friends said to her, you sounded like a priest when you did that. And then another friend said, no, you didn't. You sounded like Linus. And I'll let you guess which of those comments my wife is more proud of. There's more that I like to watch around the holiday season, but those are the ones I just kind of wanted to mention. You know what? I think it's time I should answer some feedback. Uh, first off, oh, it looks like I got a couple of uh, tweets from Vertvik, a.k.a. Victor Marlin from the Tenpence Arcade podcast. He said, congrats on you rolling the junior Pac-Man score. I can only roll one game kicker six times over. Well, and uh, thank you for that. Uh, yeah, that was uh, my junior Pac-Man turbo score. Uh, first time I ever rolled an arcade game score. That was uh, that was a lot of fun. And uh, got to get back out to Underground Retrocade and do that again. And uh, 
Yeah, it's Kicker. Oh man, I don't. I'm not sure if I if I know that one. That's not. That's not the one that also goes by Kickman, is it? No, that's Kick. But uh, Victor also says, "OMG, not again! You didn't get Astro Blaster as a kid. I played it all the time on holidays as a kid. I wish I had bought a cabaret machine I was offered a while back." Yeah. It, that's that's the way things are, Vic. I mean, I they're just I just never saw it. First time I ever saw it was a Galloping Ghost. Actually, it's not a very common machine, at least not here in the states. At least not where I grew up. Uh, maybe it was over in uh, Europe or perhaps just England. I I I really don't know. Um, well, spoiler alert for you: I never saw Astro Fighter before either until Galloping Ghost. <laughs> So a uh, little sneak preview about uh, that episode. And uh, let's see about this week's game Santa Simon. I heard from Trek MD who says season's greetings, Sean, and right back at you, my friend. Can you believe it? The Christmas season is already here again. Not that I mind since I love Christmas. The pasteles, I think that's pronounced, uh, the rice with pigeon peas, the roasted pork, the maharete, is that how it's pronounced? <laughs> oh, wait, those are not things you know about. See, that's why I have to keep asking, did I pronounce that right? Anyway, um, Eugenio says, uh, those are traditional Christmas foods in Puerto Rico. I love the Christmas music and, of course, playing Christmas-themed video games for all my consoles. Over the years, I've built a nice collection of titles. One title that I do not own in cart format, though, is the game covered in this episode of the podcast, Santa Simon. I can still play it thanks to the Cuddle Cart 2, so here is my feedback on the game. If you want to be a part of Santa's team of elves, you must prove that you have the sharp mind needed to get the job done. To test your skills, your mind, and your memory, Santa has developed the perfect tool, a program called Santa Simon. And how does Santa Simon test you? Quite easily. It has you memorize the sequence in which a Christmas tree, a reindeer, a snowman, and Santa himself signal you so you can then play it back with holiday precision. Any memory slip results in a failure of the test, ending your chances of joining Santa's team. Santa Simon is, for all purposes, a Christmas-themed version of the popular electronic game Simon. As in that game, the goal is to remember a sequence of sounds and colors in the proper order for as long as possible. And he did a much better job summing it up than I did. <laughs> um, anyway, uh, TrekMD goes on to say, Whereas in the original Simon there are simple colors and sounds to recall, this video game version has characters each of which make a different type of sound for the player to remember. Santa laughs, the snowman ahs, the deer bellows, and the tree jingles its bells. All these characters also have different movements as visual cues to help the player remember the sequence as well. Santa Simon replicates the gameplay of Simon quite well, and as such, it is a relatively simple game. That does not mean that it is not challenging. The graphics of the game are bright and colorful, but Santa's face lacks detail. He has no nose or eyes, but his mouth can be seen. There is only one screen to the entire game, which is a combined title screen and playfield screen. I wish it had been programmed with a separate title screen, or that the name of the game would at least not remain on screen during gameplay. Game sounds are minimal since they are pretty much limited to the sounds made by the characters, but these are well done. I will say there is a tune that plays before you start the game that, to be honest, is quite annoying. <laughs> It is just too high-pitched for my taste. 
If you enjoy memory games like Simon, this is certainly a game you'll enjoy. And, you know, since this is Christmas, I will say that my one Atari wish is for this game to have another cart run. Hey, Santa, please make it happen. Wishing you and your listeners a very Merry Christmas, Eugenio. Thank you so much, Eugenio. All right, I'm, st- I'm starting to sound like a dirty CD or a broken record, but uh, always great to hear from you, Eugenio. You always have uh, very good thoughts about the games. And uh, you said you like to play Christmas-themed games. If you don't have it already, I have to recommend, I have to recommend Toy Shop Trouble on the Atari 2600. It is fan-freaking-tastic. It's programmed by um, a guy in Atari Age who goes by the name Supercat. I don't know if he's he's been on Atari Age in a long time, but his name is uh, John Payson. I actually saw him at Midwest Gaming Classic this year and uh, talked to him for a little bit. But uh, he did a really great job of it. Um, what happens is there are just plain old gray toys going across a conveyor belt, and you have to paint them in the appropriate colors. Uh, think of the I Love Lucy episode when Lucy and Ethel worked in the candy factory. And uh, you kind of get an idea for how intense the game gets. It's a lot of fun. It's very addicting, very challenging. If you don't have it now, get it. Strongly, 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 highly recommend it, obviously. And uh, Eugenio, and yeah, I also share that wish. Hope you have a great Christmas and, of course, all my listeners as well. And that's going to be it for feedback. And let me talk a little bit more about uh, a janitor, Sean, Christmas. The last Christmas memory I have to share, uh, it's, uh, I don't really know how to start talking about it other than uh, the result of it was uh, basically how the rest of my life to this day would have been defined. Um, I know I've mentioned before how I'm a big Beatles fan. I, I love the Beatles very much. They're my favorite band ever. And uh, I started getting into the Beatles probably when I was uh, in eighth grade. In fact, definitely when I was in eighth grade. And I'd been listening to them so much that it came to a point when I was kind of getting tired of it. I wanted to hear some new music. So probably when I was about 15 years old, I started actively looking for something different. It's like, okay, I've heard pretty much everything the Beatles have done. Uh, I haven't yet discovered bootlegs yet. And um, let's face it, the Beatles didn't really have much output. They they were only recording together from late 1962 up until early 1970. So not a heck of a lot there. So I was like, I need more stuff to listen to. And it occurred to me that if I heard, say, the Beach Boys on the radio, I I never really turned them off. I kept kept the radio station tuned in. I kind of liked it. Except for I Get Around. I always hated that song, but that's... uh, I'm not going to get into that for I'm not going to get into that right now. So uh, I went to the library a lot. So I went to the library and got a few Beach Boys albums and I was like, "Oh my god, this is amazing." I always loved multi-part harmonies and stuff and I liked the overall sound. And so I was listening to a lot of Beach Boys stuff for quite a while. While I was discovering the Beach Boys, there was one thing that kept getting pounded into my head. Pet sounds, pet sounds, pet sounds. Brian Wilson's masterpiece, Pet Sounds. You gotta listen to Pet Sounds. It's the greatest album ever, Pet Sounds. So I eventually did. The local library didn't have it, but there was another one in the next town over that had it. And since they were in the same library system, I could request the album through Interlibrary Loan. So I got the Pet Sounds album through Interlibrary Loan. 
And it was weird because I, I was still very, very early into knowing what the Beach Boys were about. And I didn't realize it, but in 1972, the Beach Boys had put out an album called Carl and the Passions, So Tough. And when that album came out, it was a double album. The first record was the So Tough album. The second record was a reissue of Pet Sounds. And uh, that's what came to me. That's what the library had. And so I brought it home and I, I think I was cleaning my room or something. I put it on the turntable and I, and I, and I listened to it and I'm like, what's the big deal? It's kind of boring, actually. It sounds the EQ sounded bad. I thought it was kind of murky and boring, and it didn't really do anything for me. I didn't know why people were going crazy for pet sounds, but uh, there you have it. I'm like, okay, what's the big freaking deal? I brought it back to the library and, and everything and didn't really give it much thought after that. And I know most of you pro listening probably don't know a lot about Brian Wilson, the Beach Boys and everything, but Pet Sounds, it has a few songs that you've undoubtedly heard. Uh, it has Wouldn't It Be Nice, it has uh, Sloop John B, and God Only Knows. But anyway, some time goes by, and um, I had been wanting to get a CD player. I didn't have a CD player, and I, I was only 14, 15 years old, mind you, and... and course my parents were like no I'm that CDs are expensive you'll go broke you're not getting a CD player and yeah I mean I had a part-time job I, I worked actually eventually did work at the public library in Joliet where we lived at the time but of course when you're 15 years old you're still under your parents commands you don't have a driver's license so you can't just get up and leave and go get a CD player <laughs> You can't just say, hey, hey, take me to the mall. I want to get a CD player. And that, that, if they don't want you to get a CD player, you're not getting a freaking CD player. But I'd really been wanting one badly, because especially because a lot of the Beach Boys albums that I was getting from the library, like they were reissues from the late 80s. And a lot of their albums from the late 80s, when they were reissued, they were missing a couple of songs. Capitol Records decided to chop off a couple of songs on each album and lower the price and it would be a what they called a budget reissue and i was in a record store once and i saw beach boys cds and i was looking at them and the albums were fully intact they had the missing tracks and not only did they have the missing tracks but one cd had two complete albums and some extra tracks on there some of which were never released before so of course i was like oh man i gotta get a cd player so i can have this stuff well anyway eventually what happened so anyway, let's uh, flash forward to Christmas Eve 1990. I, I had just turned 16, and uh, over that time, I had been thinking in the back of my mind, I really should give Pet Sounds another chance. I really should give it another try. There's got to be a reason it gets all these accolades, and it's ranked up there with Sgt. Pepper, and uh, why people always say, oh, Pet Sounds is the greatest album. There, there's got to be a reason. I need to give it another chance. So I just kind of kept it in the back of my mind. Just remember, give Pet Sounds another chance. Next time you get a chance, listen to it, whatever. But anyway, December 24th happens. And um, as usual, we, uh, my family exchanged presents uh, Christmas Eve. And last thing I opened turned out to be a CD player from Sharp Electronics. No big surprise because my brother worked at Sharp Electronics at the time. And it was really easy for him to get... Uh, to get stuff for for a reduced rate like we had uh, sharp electronics vcr in the house i'm pretty sure we had a sharp tv and so there it was i finally had a cd player and also in the box were basically a cd starter kit if you will there was tripping the live fantastic highlights from paul mccartney it was a, a single cd version of uh, 
his most recent live tour at the time. And there was the White Album by the Beatles. And, and there was Pet Sounds. So there was my chance right there. I now have a copy of Pet Sounds of my own. I could now give it another chance. And uh, I actually had another CD that I had bought. I think I bought it in 1989 when I was at the mall with my mom once. I kind of slipped away and bought it. And of course, she's like, you don't have a CD player. Why did you buy that? It's like, well, because my brother has a CD player. I could borrow his. I, I could just copy it to a tape. It was a Beatles CD. It was... Uh, uh, those of you who don't know much about the Beatles, uh, before the Beatles took off, they did a couple of recording sessions where they were the backup band for a British singer named Tony Sheridan. And uh, once the Beatles hit it big, the company that owned the Tony Sheridan tapes suddenly started marketing those things. It's, and uh, they would be reissued as The Beatles, featuring Tony Sheridan. And, uh, and uh, they were out on CD eventually, and they were dirt cheap on CD, and they still sounded pretty good. So I bought one of those in the... Uh, just in preparation for I would get a CD player. So at that point, I now owned four titles on CD. <laughs> so, of course, I was so excited. I finally had a CD player. I was finally with the rest of the world. And uh, that night before I went to bed, I hooked it up to my stereo and everything. And uh, I couldn't wait to start using it. Everybody had gone to bed. My parents were in bed downstairs. My brother was in bed in the bedroom next door. So I just turned out the lights. And I couldn't wait to give Pet Sounds another try. So I plugged in my headphones so I wouldn't disturb anybody and I listened to pet sounds. I was lying there in bed in the dark with my headphones on and I got it. I totally got it at that point. I it's it's hard to explain like what to listen to, what you're listening for, but I was just I just kind of let it take over and every song on that album I was I, I was just stunned. The production itself, just the production alone, is freaking brilliant. Uh, just like with pretty much every Beach Boys recording up to that point, pretty much all the songs were written by Brian Wilson. He sang on some of them, he performed on some of them, he arranged all the vocal harmonies, so that was uh, the usual thing. And uh, what he liked to do when he produced, he idolized Phil Spector, and he tried to sound as much like Phil Spector as possible. He, yeah, just sometime in the last year, he said, I never could do what Phil Spector did. I never learned how to do that. <laughs> and of course, people just laugh at him because people think that he did it, including myself, think that what he did blew Spector out of the water. But he would use, he used the same musicians that Phil Spector used. Uh, he tried to create all these, he, he would have uh, multiple instruments play the same notes so that way it kind of sounded like a brand new instrument it's hard to hard to describe but uh, but the way he recorded pet sounds was he had like 20 some musicians in the studio and he recorded the four tracks and then what he did was he copied those four tracks down to a single track onto an eight track and then the rest of the seven tracks were left open for vocal overdubs and he would always double up on the vocals so they would sing things twice and give them uh, give the sound a, give it a much fuller sound in the vocals but uh, I think what it was is that not just the music but also the lyrics uh, Brian Wilson rarely writes songs on his own he usually has a lyricist with him back in the early days of the Beach Boys his cousin Mike Love who was Mike Love sang lead on a lot of the Beach Boys like faster songs but uh, and he had a kind of a nasally voice and, and uh, that that's what Mike Love was but uh, he sang a couple of songs on uh, Pet Sounds but for Pet Sounds Brian had worked with a guy named Tony Asher 
who was an ad agent that Brian had met at a party or something. And he said, hey, you want to do an album with me? And Tony's like, sure. And uh, I think that the way that Brian Wilson always worked with his lyricists to this day was he'd say, okay, well, here's a song I'm working on and here's what I wanted to say. I wanted to have this kind of thing and I want to, I wanted to talk about this topic and everything. And then, the, and then his lyricist would come up with lyrics that would fit the meter, that would rhyme and everything. And the lyrics on All of Pet Sounds, it's basically, it's all about hang-ups and things. And when you think about it, here is Brian Wilson. He was 23 years old when he recorded the album. He had so much going for him. He was married. He was crazy in love with his wife, and his wife was really good to him. His brothers were very supportive of him. Uh, he was rich. He was successful. But he still had hang-ups. He was still a very insecure person. And the lyrics on Pet Sounds all reflected his insecurities. And the thing is, I think that's what spoke to me, because what he was singing about was stuff that everybody in the world could relate to. It was about hang-ups. It was about wanting to be out on your own. It was about uh, love gone wrong and how could I have done things better? And, oh my God, this woman loves me and I don't understand why. I'm not, I, I could be so much better, but she's still there for me. <laughs> and it's just that. And it just really spoke to me, especially at the age of 16, when you're going through all the teen angst and everything, it's just so there. And I was like, oh my God, it's now I get it. I get why people love this album so much. And I just fell in love with it. I just couldn't get enough of it. I let it play all the way through. I listened to the three bonus tracks. And then I wanted to listen to it all over again right away. But I was getting really sleepy, so I decided not to. So what was different about the time that I listened to it on Christmas Eve 1990? And when I listened to it in probably summer of 89... Or actually, it might have been summer of 1990. It was summer of 1990, that's right. Because it was right after I started working at the public library, now that I think about it. What was different? The first time I listened to it, well, first of all, I listened to it on a really old album. And um, I wasn't on the greatest turntable in the world that I listened to it on. And I was cleaning and dusting my room at the time. So I, didn't ha I wasn't listening to it with all the focus in the world and all that. But Christmas Eve 1990, I was... It was just me by myself, just doing nothing but listening to pet sounds, and I had the lights out, and I had headphones on. And hand to God, I swear to God, this is true. And I think, I'm not, I, I don't want to, like, uh, call people out necessarily, but I think Ferg can back me up on this. <laughs> I swear to God Almighty, in 1997, when there was a 30th anniversary pet sounds box set released, there was an electronic press kit that came out with it, and they showed it on VH1 a lot, actually. And there was a clip of Brian Wilson from 1997, and I think this is verbatim, but it's off the top of my head. He said, when you listen to pet sounds, listen in the dark with headphones. You'll hear everything. And I almost passed out when I heard him say that, because that's exactly what I did. Now, I talked about how what happened that Christmas Eve defined my life, and I'm going to get to that right now, actually. What I didn't know at the time was that probably at that exact moment, about 750 miles east, there was somebody else doing the same thing. Just got a CD player and was listening to Pet Sounds in the Dark with headphones on Christmas Eve. And um, 
Well, I'm just going to cut to the chase. That person is my wife now, and we've been married 18 years, and um, we met because of Pet Sounds. I had posted somewhere online about how Pet Sounds is important to me, like why I love it so much, and I got an email from somebody She said, who said, you know what, I thought I was the only nut in the world my age who thought like that. Turns out we're about the same age, and of course... And, and of course, the person who sent the email is now my wife, but uh, turned out what, what happened was she was she was at work, she was bored, and uh, it's not that she was slacking off. Where she used to, she used to work at uh, AT&T as a uh, document specialist, web designer kind of thing, and there were times literally at her job where she literally absolutely had nothing to do because she'd go to work and she'd still be on contract. Uh, she was on contract that she had to be paid, so of course she was being paid for basically doing nothing. There'd be times when the client said, yeah, we don't have anything for you right now, but she would still be contractually obligated to get paid for that time. So while she was waiting for work to happen, she'd like go online, do some online shopping, read Usenet news groups and things. And she saw my post and she's like, I had to email you. I just wanted to, uh, I just wanted to say, I'm glad there's somebody else out there. And I responded and we'd actually kept in touch for for about a year at that time. This was 1997. And there came a day that she said, hey, you know what? Um, I'm going to be in Chicago. She lived in New Jersey. I lived outside of Chicago in Joliet. She said, I'm going to be in Chicago. Uh, She said, you know, such and such a person who's kind of her on-again, off-again boyfriend, and they were off-again at the time. Uh, She said, we're going to be in Chicago, and hey, while he's going to be auditioning for a Chicago Symphony Orchestra, how about we get together and go record shopping and you know what while he's auditioning and and you know it's she said it's about time we met i was like okay and um so i go to chicago we went we had lunch at the hard rock cafe and we sat there and talked for like four hours before we before we actually went record shopping and we just kind of clicked and i just remember driving home and thinking what just happened tonight because it was just just a couple of friends who Wanted to meet and just you know go record shopping and have some fun and it just there there was just something much more to it and I got home and all I could think of is what just happened and when she got back home in New Jersey she called me and she said what happened and long story short that was kind of where it all started for the two of us and uh, it was all with pet sounds and every year since we got to be a real couple we've listen to pet sounds every christmas just because of that moment uh so it just i guess that's one reason why i why christmas will always be kind of important to me it's things like that can happen (sighs) so anyway sorry to have to be so maudlin about this i just had to let that out and share probably a unique christmas memory that not a lot of people would would have but there we have it thank you for uh putting up with me (laughs) Well, if you've made it this far, then you've made it to the end of the episode. And thank you, everybody, for sticking it out with me, as it were, talking about uh, my maudlin Christmas memories and things that I do at Christmas. I really appreciate you uh, listening. I just, I, I just like sharing little bits about myself here and there. And I hope all of you have a great Christmas or whatever holiday you celebrate, if you do indeed celebrate a holiday. If you don't celebrate a holiday, then do whatever you can to have a great anything anything at all. And of course, I do thank the following folks for 
financially supporting this podcast via patreon.com. Thank you to Jimmy G, Kyle Etter, Richard Valdez, Great Offender, Richard Grounds, and Ed Ladin Controllers. Thank you so much, guys. I really appreciate it. And if you would like to also support this podcast monetarily, you can go to patreon.com slash homebrew78. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com. Show notes for this and other episodes are available on the web at homebrew78.fab4it.com. And you can reach me via email at homebrew78 at fab4it.com. And fab4it is spelled F-A-B, the number four, and then I-T. You can reach me over Twitter at homebrew78, although to be quite honest, I don't use it as much as I should. I really need to work on that. And um, my YouTube channel is homebrew7800. For the next episode, the final episode of 2017, Assuming I get it out on time, that's going to be about the homebrew worm, exclamation point. So anyway, uh, Merry Christmas, Happy Solstice, Happy Hanukkah, whatever holiday you're going to celebrate, happy one. If you don't celebrate a holiday, happy whatever you choose to make it. Hope you get the happiness that you deserve, and I hope that you give these hardworking homebrew developers the support that they deserve. Talk to you on uh, New Year's Eve. Eve. See ya.